I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Birds. That's not a rib. She booted. She booted. What a rib? No, you have a big. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. I ain't scared to shut him. Cue Bruce. Ah, Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, hey, really not much going on this week. How about you? Anything new and exciting happen? Somebody who knew how to look good. Well, that's our man, Rob Van Dam. And, of course, we're celebrating him today on 420. Why are we doing this on April 20th, Bruce? Because that's the day that our show drops. It's, it's on Friday, and, and the date today when the show drops is April 20th, 420. I like it. Well, of course, uh, Robert Alex Zafkowski was born on December 18th, 1970. And I think that's the same birthday as Steve Austin. Hmm. Born and raised. Well, happy birthday, Steve. In Battle Creek, Michigan, which I think is kind of fun because when he was in ECW, they used to switch it up with him and Sabu and say, uh, you know, Bombay, Michigan and Battle Creek, India. Good stuff. You ever been to Battle Creek before, Bruce? Battle Creek, India. I was there, uh, this past, this past summer and got the Mama Zuma's Revenge kind of thing. Montezuma's Revenge in India. So um, Rob becomes interested in martial arts when he's watching it on television, and he starts to mimic those moves at like 13 and 14, but he first gets exposed to wrestling about 15 years old. He gets together with all of his friends, and they watch and wrestle with each other. Uh, but before that, he actually attended WrestleMania three. And a friend of his dad worked in Pontiac, and that's where the show was held, of course. So they got like tickets on row 24 and he was a big jake the snake fan and he brought signs and i mean he was a super fan and then sort of famously and i think a lot of people remember this they did the ted dibiase million dollar man skit what can you tell us about rob van dam and that skit you know rob told me when i first met him one of the first times that i met him he goes you know i was one of those people that came out of the audience and did one of Ted DiBiase's, will you do this for money deal? I was like, really? And he actually did the kiss my feet thing with Ted DiBiase and got paid at a show in Michigan one time. We went back and actually found the footage, and it was Rob Sikowski that that was there. So I thought that was pretty damn cool. He was a mega fan. It is cool, and I think that's like 87. Uh, But So do you think the first time you see him in a WWF ring is 1997? against Jeff Hardy on Raw, but really it was 87. 
for this million dollar man skit, which is kind of fun. He uh, sort of came up in the business with, in a different era, almost a different time. And he worked a lot of his first matches with Greg Valentine. And those are two names that I don't think you would think about sort of coming in together. Um, I think a lot of people have heard the story though, of how Rob sort of got in the business and was trained. What do you remember about Rob getting into the business or the stories that you've heard? You know, the, the main stories that I heard about Rob was obviously that he had trained with the original Sheik, Ed Farhat out of Detroit, Michigan. And the Sheik was the first one that really took an interest in Rob and really taught him how to work in the business. And when I say taught him how to work, the Sheik didn't teach anybody how to work at first. The Sheik taught you to respect the business and he showed you holds and taught you the real, you know, taught you real wrestling and made you respect the business first long before he ever smartened you up that the business was a work, made sure that you were tough enough physically and mentally to be in the business in the first place. And before he decides to actually get into wrestling, he, he does some tough man contests and finishes second. Uh, and he thinks he can do this because he'd been training to kickbox. But then one day, ironically, uh, he has a chance meeting and gets an opportunity to start training with the Sheik in 1989. And that chance meeting happens when he's in a grocery store, bagging groceries for a living. And prior to that, he had sort of flirted with the idea of Killer Kowalski, but he wound up with the Sheik. How do you think... Rob's career might have been differently had he went to Kowalski's school instead of the Sheik. Well, he'd probably be running the WWE right now if he'd gone to Kowalski's school. I was hoping you would say that. Um, so it is a different era. Have you heard of you know, some of the training methods that the Sheik would do? I mean, I think most people listening to this are familiar with the Sheik. And if you're not, we're not talking about the Iron Sheik, who you actually have a pretty good impression of, right? Hush for to be. Maybe I'll bend your back, fuck you in ass, and humble you, Connie, a baby. Oh, God. I love you just did the JR deal at the end, too. Um, so he starts. You were always my favorite. He does like 12 matches in uh, 1990, but he says that, you know, realistically, none of the stuff that we know Rob Van Dam for was taught to him by the Sheik. The Sheik taught him how to tie up, how to put on a headlock, the really basic stuff. But Rob knew early on, man, he wanted to do the high-risk stuff, the high-flying stuff. But it's not like the Sheik's teaching fucking five-star frog splashes, right? (laughs) Yeah, I don't think that the Sheik ever got up and off the top rope too much in his career. And there's a reason for that. He didn't have to. And the Sheik was a major attraction But the important thing that the Sheik taught Rob and Sabu was the fundamentals. And he taught him how to protect himself in the ring and made sure he knew what the hell he was doing in the ring so people couldn't see through what he was doing. So eventually he gets booked in the USWA. And this happens because the Sheik has a relationship with Jerry Lawler. And this is when things start to happen for Rob. Uh, The Sheik had named him the Polish Prince, and he had also wrestled as Robbie Z, Rob Zat, a few other silly names. And then one day he meets a promoter from Florida, Mr. Ron Slinker. And Ron Slinker is there to watch his son-in-law, Tex Slasinger, who we know as Midian or Phineas. 
do you have any good Ron Slinker stories you can share with us? It's almost like a forgotten name from wrestling. As a matter of fact, I do, because Ron Slinker came through the Houston territory way back when in the 70s. And Tom and I both being in karate, that was Ron's gimmick. He was a karate guy. So we would go back and talk to Ron about karate and about wrestling. And he would always be nice to us and talk to us. But many years later, when we got into the business and we were actually working, would kind of meet up with Ron from time to time. And he would always laugh about those two kids from Houston, Texas, the karate kids that ended up, you know, making it in the wrestling business. Ron was always, you know, really nice to us. And he, he was a nice guy. And like I said, he was the, Stepfather of one and only Midian. That would be, uh, Phineas Godwin. So Ron actually gives him the name Rob Van Dam because he looks a lot like Jean-Claude Van Dam. And I feel like a lot of our younger listeners may not know how big of a fucking deal was Jean-Claude Van Dam in the early nineties. Jean-Claude Van Dam was Chuck Norris probably before Chuck Norris. And I think that if you were to ask people back in the day who was going to be the star and who would be the one with the longevity in Hollywood, people would have chosen Rob, I mean, uh, Jean-Claude Van Dam over even Chuck Norris. So he was a megastar. He was on the same, you know, same level as Sylvester Stallone, you know, when people looked at action heroes and, uh, he was a shiznit. Um, at this point, and I think a lot of our listeners have probably seen this, Rob gets an opportunity to wrestle a little bit for WCW as Robbie V. And this happens because Ron is friends with Bill Watts, who's running WCW at the time. And so Rob actually uh, gets an opportunity here to do some enhancement matches against Pat Rose, friend of the show from Chattanooga. I think he has a fishing show named Set the Hook. Or on the hook. It's one of those. Or off the hook. It's a hook fucking fishing show. With Pitt li- yeah, yeah. Pat- Pitt likes to fash. Pat likes to fish. Pitt likes to fash? Yeah, that's close enough. Is that, like, like... is that like fresh paint of coat? Exactly. What's going on with you? Are you all right? you taking your meds? I did. I did. I took them early today. Maybe that's what's going on. Now, here's what's interesting to me. When Rob gets to WCW, Bill Watts says, I don't want you to use the name Van Damme. And... Rob thinks that's sort of weird and says, why not? (laughs) And he says, I don't want you to be confused with someone else. I thought that's hilarious because that's what everything in wrestling is about, is trying to, I mean, how many fucking nature boys were there? Like, that's what you do. I don't know. Yeah, but at the same, at the same time, you, you want to be the one that everybody else is copying. Right. You don't want to copy everybody. You want to be the innovator and you want to be the one that creates something that everybody else wants to imitate, not imitating someone. So I agree with that philosophy. Well, not too terribly long after Rob is in WCW, Ole Anderson takes over because Watts is out. And Ole just didn't see the same thing that Bill did. So Rob winds up not signing a contract and just being able to leave. He was working on a sort of nightly deal. And he decides, hey, it's time to hit the independence. And he sort of sharpens his skills a little bit. He only had a run in WCW from like December of 92 to May of 93. And apparently Mike Graham was the guy who would always push him to sign. But Rob would say things like, I forgot it at home. I'll bring it. And I feel like Rob was probably playing a game there just because he knew, especially at that time, man, business is down. If you're going to get in, you need to get in with the WWF. Don't get locked down here. Right. 
I think also just the changeover in Booker's from Watts to Ole. It's a completely different philosophy. And both of those guys are old-time guys, but Ole for sure wasn't a big fan of the uh, the pretty boy, good-looking guy. <laughs> uh, and Rob had a different look. You know, he didn't look like that wrestler type that Ole really would have liked to have. How would you compare a Booker like uh, Bill Watts with a Booker like Ole Anderson? Well, both guys are pretty similar in that they're both old school guys and they are in favor of the wrestling. They're not really big on gimmicks. They're not really big on high flying and they both favor heat over making the audience happy. You know, the, a lot of the old school guys, it was all about getting heat and leaving heat and building up to the one big match for the baby face to get the blow off. But Everything building up to it and all your TV was all about heat. And Watson and Ole were alike in that way. But I do, as much as it pains me to say this, Bill was probably a lot more open to new ideas, and Bill did see the value of youth, and he saw the value of, of young talent to draw a younger crowd. Ole didn't. Ole felt that the... No, you you want the older crowd and the steadfast crowd. He's working some independence and runs into Brady Boone, who suggests that Rob's style would work great in Japan. So Brady makes a call, and eventually Rob gets a shot to do a tour with All Japan, and he winds up working there from 93 to 97. And, of course, he's working some shots here in the States, especially for ECW. But Rob would probably say that he really put everything together with the Rob Van Dam character and sort of honed his style as Rob Van Dam that we know while he was in Japan. Um, what do you think of a guy sort of, I mean, this feels like almost like the old warrior's code from generate centuries ago, where really if you're going to sort of become a badass, you have to go to another land, a faraway land, and then come back. What do you think of guys who go to Japan and really sort of put it all together, whether it's Rob Van Dam or AJ Styles? I mean, AJ Styles is the most recent example where he's working with TNA, really not serious interest from WWE from a financial standpoint. He goes over, conquers Japan, and comes back for big money. Now he's the tippy-top guy. Japan allows them that opportunity, does it not? It does, and it, it allows guys maybe with not the biggest personalities and – that aren't that flamboyant here in the States and aren't able to get over to go get over with their in in ring skills in Japan because they don't speak the language. They don't have to. However, if they can tell a story and they can perform in between bell time, then they're going to do very well in Japan. So it's a different style. It's a completely different philosophy for a guy like Rob Van Dam who didn't have the biggest personality per se, especially at this time when he's young in the business and he's still developing, it's a great time to go and learn. And as JR, you say, you know, go away, learn a new hope. This was an opportunity for Rob to go learn a different style and to grow and just get experience in the business. And I feel like it's worth mentioning here that Kenny Omega is the most recent example of this, at least to me. You know, here's a guy who WWE didn't see a ton in in developmental. He goes to Japan and proves not just them, but the whole fucking world wrong. And arguably one of the best wrestlers in the world, if not the very best wrestler in the world. But it all happened through the in-ring work, exactly like you're saying. And uh, But you know what? Yeah, here's funny. I'm going to go off on a Kenny Omega tirade here for a second. 
I saw some early Kenny Omega stuff that he did, that he produced himself, that was complete ha-ha and just complete bullshit. And I found it some of the most entertaining stuff I have ever seen in my life. And that, when I saw the old stuff of Kenny Omega just goofing around and it was a, a thing on a boat and, a, and a, in and out of a house, I went, wow, this guy's got personality. And I, and I watch the, the Bullet Club stuff with the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega and Cody. Highly entertaining. So for people, when I hear that, well, Kenny Omega didn't have a whole lot of personality, that son of a bitch has a shitload of personality. And I think that he would do really well here in the States. But it was his ring work, and it was him getting over somewhere else that got everybody's attention over here. But eventually, uh, Rob is in Japan, and he starts to realize that you got to fucking kick these dudes for real. (laughs) And... He learned very quickly that the sort of softer American style was not resonating with the crowd or the boys, and so they had to really start kicking the shit out of each other. And that goes back to the sheik who taught him to be stiff, but it's another level in Japan sometimes, going back to like Kawada and guys like that who would just kick the fuck out of each other. It sort of smarten us up. Why is that? I mean... I always sort of thought the gimmick with wrestling is it's supposed to look like it hurts, but then it doesn't. But then over there, and you see that influence everywhere. I mean, even, what, 15 years ago, Loki was kicking the shit out of dudes. Yeah, I don't get it. I, I was brought up in, in a different way. I was brought up, you know, th- to work and not to hurt your opponent and to work lightly and take care of your opponent. However, times change, and I think that... In the United States, we're kind of the last ones to adopt it. But when you have competition with UFC where guys are going out there beating the shit out of each other, that's what your competition is, and you have to make it look the best you can. When you would go to Japan or you would go to Otto Vons in Germany, a lot of times the foreign talent coming in to their country, they would be tested. Let's see how tough they are. Let's see if they can take it. And they would put them in the ring and beat the shit out of them to see if they're going to come back, see if they're going to actually fight back. And that would tell them in Japan what kind of character they have. Well, you know, this guy's got it. He's tough. He's not going to take any shit from anybody. And that helps get you over with the office and with the boys and then with the crowd. Of course, he befriends Sabu, and Sabu's trying to get him into ECW. So around January of 96, Sabu is really trying to pressure Paul Heyman to bring in Rob. And every week when they see each other, he says, did Paul call you? And Rob says, no, he has not. Rob at the time was still working in Japan, of course, running some shots in the Carolinas and doing well for himself. And when the Paul, the Paul Heyman call finally happens, it's, hey, we're going to give you a few hundred bucks to come in and put over Mikey Whipwreck. And Rob doesn't want to do that. So they want to book an angle for him instead just to appease Sabu. But Paul wants to take a look at him. So he puts him in the ring with Axel Rotten. And this is his first time wrestling in front of the ECW arena. And that's a bloodthirsty crowd. And Rob admits he'd never seen anything like that in his entire career up to that point. Bruce, I know you just saw the ECW arena, I guess, last year when we took a tour. But you were never there when there was a crowd there, when you watched the tapes of that, what's the, I mean, can you compare it to any other arena or crowd in history? 
No. You know, that, that Philadelphia crowd, that ECW crowd, they were, they were passionate. <laughs> you know, they knew what they wanted. They had their own chance and it was a cult-like following. So that came across on air and that's something that Paul played into and the audience loved it. So it's here in this first run of ECW where he starts to do this double thumb point gimmick. And it originally starts from just a double bicep and then out of enthusiasm and excitement. He does it as sort of a heel taunt, and it starts to get over. And he doesn't really know how over it is until they're on the bus in Japan, and they pass a group of fans, and they're all doing the double thumb pose at him. It's one of those little things that really helps you get over. I mean, Daniel Bryan with the yes chant these days is the perfect example of that, is it not? Absolutely, and it's usually happy accidents <laughs> that work the best, that are organic, and you keep doing it. You know, Austin 316, it, all of those are great examples of something that in the spur of the moment you do it, and it works, and it catches on. One of the more, I guess, iconic things that Rob was doing at the time was his finishing move, which in ECW, you got to remember, everything goes, the Van Daminator. And to remind you, if you haven't seen this or you didn't know that's what it's called, the Van Daminator is he throws a chair at you, and to keep it from hitting you in the face, you catch it, and then he immediately kicks it in your fucking face. Uh, Bruce, what did you think of the Van Daminator the first time you saw it? Hated it the first time I saw it. Um, I thought it was dangerous. But then, you know, after a while, you, you watch and you go, okay, well, the guy that's got the chair, he's pretty much controlling it. So... After a while, you know, I watch it and go, okay, that's pretty damn cool, as a matter of fact. But it's hard, you know, you can't do that anywhere else but ECW, really. Of course, Rob was involved in this ECW-WWF cross-pollination project that you guys were doing in 97. And he even appears on Raw wrestling a very young Jeff Hardy. And Rob gets the win and was what was effectively a squash match. And around this same time... He was having some problems in ECW. He felt like he had been slighted and not, not showcased enough, uh, to the point that he wasn't even originally scheduled to compete on Barely Legal, but Chris Candido was injured, and so all of a sudden, Rob Van Dam had an opportunity to fill in and dub himself Mr. Monday Night and really get over with the crowd. When you guys first saw Rob Van Dam in the WWF working with Jeff Hardy, did you imagine that there was something there? Did you know that Rob had it? Or when did you first realize, maybe we can do something with him? People are into him, or he has something. Uh, I'll tell you the first time that I, I saw Rob Van Dam was actually with Dory Funk Jr. long before he was even in ECW, right about the time that he was going to WCW. And Rob Van Dam does the Van Dam split, where he takes two chairs or the Van Dam deadlift and takes two chairs and does the splits and then lifts a barbell in between. Extremely difficult to do and extremely impressive when you see somebody do it. And I'd seen Rob and I always thought, you know, he had a unique look and he just had a different style. So watching Rob from day one thought that he was special and thought he was somebody that could come into the WWE and have a big niche following. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time, and when I say every time, I mean it. I've used PaintYourLife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now, I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from PaintYourLife.com. 
My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom, we're up and running. You see, PaintYourLife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson, but paintyourlife.com that can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion, that's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So, of course, this starts a little bit of a feud. Lawler's calling ECW, you know, low-budget, wannabes, no talent, blah, blah, blah. Um, Rob starts to sort of dub himself Mr. Monday night and Lawler is saying that he's going to have somebody take care of that John Bon Jovi wannabe. And this is sort of early ECW WWF stuff, but I have such great memories of this. Maybe it was just the height of my fandom in 97. Looking back, what are your memories of this, uh, ECW WWF stuff from 97, at least from a Rob Van Dam perspective? Well, it was Rob Van Dam was probably the star that we wanted the most. And he was somebody that we felt that we could bring in and actually capitalize on. So Van Dam was somebody we were interested in. That is attractive and yet terrifying to Paul Heyman because Paul at the same time is now realizing, oh, shit, WWE is looking at Van Dam. 
I don't want to lose him. And if they're interested in him, then, you know, I've, I've got something here. And Paul liked to have that control. And Paul liked to manipulate the talent into thinking that he was the only one that could guide their career for him. And he really did that pretty masterfully. Uh, allegedly, Rob felt like he had an opportunity to do something with Bischoff. And Paul apparently convinced him that, no, you've really got to leverage that deal by appearing on Monday Night Raw. It'll make them watch you even more. You can call yourself Mr. Monday Night, and we'd never know where you're going to show up. It'll be great for your character. But then when he actually goes to work for the WWF on some of these shots, while he's still under an ECW contract, Paul's telling him stuff like, they don't want you here, so watch your bags. Don't leave them where anybody can get to them. They're going to shit in your bags or cut your clothes up. I mean, he really had the guys sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, did he not? Um, Yes. And and it wasn't even like it was hidden. There there was Paul taking them and going to the corner, and you literally see Paul looking over his shoulder to see if anybody's watching them or trying to eavesdrop on them. But that's how Paul got guys to do what he wanted to do. You know, Paul continually fed in to their ego. Paul continually told them what he thought they wanted to hear and was continually feeding this us against them mentality even then. And that's what he needed to do to get that loyalty for the ECW locker room. Rob gets an opportunity to work some shotgun Saturday night matches. He's teaming with Lawler against the Headbangers. And then on Raw, he's also getting an opportunity to wrestle the old two Cole Scorpio, Flash Funk here in the WWF. There's tables involved, and Rob gets the win. And then there's a tag team title tournament the next week, and the Headbangers actually beat Rob Van Dam and Lawler. And in hindsight, Rob probably didn't like teaming with Lawler. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. What's the thinking here in putting Rob Van Dam on the same team with Jerry Lawler? Because Lawler was so anti-ECW and Rob was ECW. So it was Rob was kind of being presented as almost the... He's better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that was the reasoning for it. It was, you know, Lawler taking the guy that he's going to now mold into the WWE. One of the guys that uh, Rob had interaction with in his early run here in the WWF is Owen Hart. He had looked up to Owen Hart because of all the high-flying moves and whatnot, and Owen really put over Rob in a big way and said, man, I could steal five matches from just watching one of yours. Um, I thought it was pretty cool that so many guys, especially from this era, really have such respect for Owen. It says a lot about Owen as a performer and as a man, right? Owen was a great performer, and Owen was an innovator long before he came into the WWE. I remember back at what I think it was WrestleMania five, I guess. But Owen Hart on the in Germany and well, Germany and Japan, people were talking about Owen's moves then being things that they had never ever seen before. So Owen Hart to the boys, especially young talent. They looked at Owen, and Owen always strived to be different and to innovate versus imitate. One of the things that happened pretty early in the run is Paul Heyman is constantly saying, if you're uncomfortable with anything, just say the word and we'll go. Uh, Sort of insinuating Rob didn't have to do anything that he didn't want to for the WWF. And Rob felt like it was his mission to sort of help get ECW over. And one of the early matches that were proposed were that the road dog jesse james would go over rob van dam and this is a different time of course and rob said something like hey if we're if we're doing jobs here how does this help the company 
And Paul E. said, hey, if you want to leave, we'll leave. So they decide to leave, but they go talk to Vince McMahon first. And that's the first time Vince meets Rob. And Vince says something to the effect of, I plan on you staying here in the WWF or else I wouldn't put your face on TV. And I see you as a baby face. Do you remember this first meeting with Vince and Rob Van Dam? Sure I do, because Paul was stirring everything up. And Paul was trying to get these guys, oh, they're, they, yeah. it wasn't that the boys didn't want to do a job. It was Paul didn't want them to do a job. And it was Paul feeling that if they did a job on RTV, that that would hurt w, or ECW. The fact that we're putting them on TV and doing something with them helps ECW by the exposure alone. And there were stories to it. And as Vince said, I wouldn't put you on TV if I didn't have plans for you wanting to do something with you. Well, and one of the things I I read in my research that I sort of found hard to believe is you guys were actually planning to take this ECW, WWF stuff a step further, allegedly, according to the rumor and innuendo, at SummerSlam 1997, a Rob Van Dam and Sabu tag team was proposed to take on Tommy Dreamer and Sandman. That's right, at SummerSlam 97. Now, obviously, that didn't happen, but according to the legend, it didn't happen because Rob sort of didn't want to do the job for Jesse James, and plans change, as they say, and that relationship sort of falls apart. Why did the relationship sort of come apart at the seams in 97 with ECW from an on-air standpoint? For that reason, that, that Paul, you know, I think Paul got people so stirred up that, you know, they didn't want to do jobs and they didn't want to. It's fine telling a story as long as I win. But when I lose, I don't want to tell the story anymore. I want to be on your TV as long as I win. And that just doesn't work because to tell a story, you have to have winners and losers. And that's why it fell apart. And if there was going to be a debate over that every single time, Vince didn't want to deal with it. So did you ever have a conversation with anybody about a proposed ECW match at SummerSlam 97, or is that just a a, a bullshit deal? I think that's just people talking and saying, oh, oh yeah. you know, it's probably Dave Meltzer sitting there going, I know what they're going to do. They're going to have a tag team match. But that was never on the books, and that was, wasn't something. If anything, we would have had ECW guys against WWE guys. He winds up staying in ECW, has an incredible run with the ECW title for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days. Um, I mean, over a year, well over a year. He wins the tag titles a couple of times with Sabu. And then eventually in late 2000, Rob is looking for somewhere to land because the checks aren't coming in. And he feels like the longer he's here, the bigger hole he's going to be dug. He's still getting his guarantee, but he's not getting pay-per-view bonuses. He's not getting merchandise payments. So he's looking to jump off of a sinking ship, but he does make one last appearance at the last pay-per-view, January 7th, 2001, where he beat Jerry Lynn, and allegedly he wanted a guarantee that was twice as much as he had been paid before, and it had to be cash. Paul agreed to do it, but when Rob got there and asked for it, Paul said, I didn't think you meant cash, cash. How great Excuse me, sir. You mean You mean cash as in Benjamin's? Oh, sir, I feel that you are highly mistaken. If I could have another volley, what I thought you meant by cash was I would give you one of these fine pieces of paper with a dollar amount on it that you may take to your bank. They may not be able to cash it right away, but you will have it for double your guarantee, sir. Probably the biggest highlight of Rob's ECW career is winning the television title from Bam Bam Bigelow, and I think that happened in 98 
And there's a pretty iconic moment there when he climbs to the top rope and then jumps from the top of the ring out to the floor, like on the other side of the guardrail and flips over. Did you remember seeing anything of Rob's run in ECW before he came up and thinking, fuck, we got to get this guy? I just was, believe it or not, I, I was always a fan of Rob's because of his look. And he was different. His work was different. He didn't work like every other guy. I wasn't as big of a fan of his hardcore stuff and a lot of that, but I was more of a fan of of his uniqueness. Let's talk about when it's all over. When did you guys want to get in business with Rob Van Dam, and why didn't it happen sooner? Well, I got. I wanted to get in business with Rob Van Dam all the way back to 1997. I remember somewhere in there between like 98 and 2000 being at a show at the Galaxy Theater in California, uh, outside of Los Angeles for a UPW show. And we were up in a box and everything, and somebody came down and said, hey, Rob Van Dam's here. And Rob was in a box on the completely uh, other side. Uh, he stuck his head in and said hello, and I went down and talked to him and handed him my card. And I said, you know that uh, whenever you're ready to make a move, I sure would appreciate it if you'd give me a call. He said, of course, you know, love to, man. He goes, I'm, I'm good right now. But I, I've always been a fan of Rob's and always felt he'd be a good fit with the WWE. So allegedly, um, he decides, hey, if he can't beat him, join him. And by he, I mean Paul Heyman. He shows up and does commentary on Raw, and a lot of the boys didn't know that this was the end of the end and that now Paul had went and worked for the Big Bad Empire. That probably had to make a lot of the guys who had been hearing the sermons for years and years about how you don't want to go there, they don't know what to do with you, you know, they're this big corporate monster, it's not real wrestling, you know, they won't let you be you. You're going to be a prisoner. And now he's on TV. A lot of the guys probably feel a, a certain type of way about that. Do they not? Yeah, because <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, their their fearless leader is on WWE TV, extolling the virtues of the WWE and doing everything that he had preached to them not ever to do because you have to believe in your brand and you have to be able to sell ECW and ECW, sir, is the only thing that matters. And we will not sell out to the corporate bigwigs. And they hadn't even shut the doors and Paul was on our TV. So I think there were a lot of, there was a lot of buzz. It was kind of, you know, what the fuck? So Rob decides, okay, Paul's there. I need to call him and see if he can help me get in. Paul says, that's great. I'll call JR and call you right back. And when he calls him back, he says, you got to meet Jim at the LAX Marriott because they think you have a reputation for being hard to get along with. And that probably goes back to him refusing to do a job for Jesse James in 97. Right, Bruce? I'm not really privy to the conversation that Paul and JR had. However, I would say that Rob was painted with that brush from back at that time with the Jeff Hardy incident. And people did think that, okay, well, you know what? It was Rob, it was Sabu, it was Paul, and they were difficult to deal with at that time. So most felt that it was probably Paul stirring that pot 
at the same time, you, you've got to be able to look Rob in the eye and say, what do you want to do? Do you want to do business and, and work with us? And probably JR was out in L.A., and it was a good opportunity because that's where Rob lived. Get them together and talk. And I can see JR say, well, I need to look him in the eye and, uh, and just let him know we ain't going to have none of this ECW shenanigans. And oh. I can see Paul kind of, you know, sticking that there, you know, uh, to say, you know, Rob, they put doubt in Rob's mind, too. Rob winds up signing a three-year contract, but he's a little concerned about what they're going to do with him. Are they going to change his name, create a new character? But none of that happens. Instead, he debuts on July 9th, 2001, and this is the famous invasion angle. He gets there, Tommy Dreamer's there, and throws him the ECW shirt, and ta-da, the representing ECW and the Alliance was born. Were there any other ideas kicked around for bringing in Rob as maybe a different character or a different name, or how was he able to use this the way he was? No, timing was right. Timing was right because of the invasion. We realized that we needed, uh, first of all, we needed the ECW guys. We needed more people with name recognition. We didn't get that from WCW. The, the big names were still under their AOL Time Warner contracts. Rob Van Dam being available, to us, that was the biggest ECW name that was available out there. So keep his name, keep his persona, and paint him with that ECW brush that we were trying to paint. So, um, no, we wanted to bring in Rob Van Dam. Now, of course, the ECW locker room is a lot different than the WWF backstage area, the whole situation. And Rob admits that he never really got used to the way ECW compared to the WWF. He was never really comfortable with the WWF because a lot of times they've got a call time of like 1 o'clock and the show doesn't actually go on the air until 8. So you've got like this whole day here, and that was really not the way it happened in ECW. What, what do you think is the other biggest difference between the two locker rooms? <laughs> Probably not having to piss in a bucket. Um, structure, uh, people having to be responsible for their actions, a lot. I mean, the the rumor and and that's strictly going on rumor and innuendo um the pissing in the bucket is something i did witness at my one and only ecw show that i ever went to but it was completely different there there was structure to it and you you had to be on time you had to do certain things there were certain things that were expected of you and you know it's funny when people say oh i got to get there at one o'clock reason you have to get there at one o'clock is there's a lot of other things that are going on besides your one match um the dot-com may need you. Production may need you. There's pre-tapes to be done. There's a lot of things that need to get done throughout the day. And if you're searching for people or having to adjust the schedule for one person or two people, it makes it difficult. So you've got a lot of production stuff to do, and we need everybody there on time. So let's talk about his early run here because he's on the July 17th SmackDown teaming up with Billy Kidman to defeat X-Pac and Jeff Hardy. And a few days later, it's the Invasion pay-per-view in Cleveland, and he has a barn burner of a match with Jeff Hardy, and he actually wins the hardcore title. So you guys are pushing him and featuring him right away. Uh, tell me what the feeling on Rob is when he comes in and is immediately met with a big push and a huge pay-per-view match with Jeff Hardy. Well, looking, looking at the group of talent coming in, here's a young, good-looking guy with a lot of talent in Rob Van Dam, and... 
wanted to do something with him. Vince liked him and just, you know, let's start him and let's introduce him to our audience and let's build him from there. So it was Vince's way of an introduction and see what we've got from here. So let's talk about that match, um, the invasion pay-per-view. It's something that people still talk about to this day. What do you think of this Rob and, and Jeff Hardy match here? Well, I'm not a big fan of, of hardcore matches, but I think that when you do it well and it is something that you get that holy shit moment in there, both Jeff Hardy and Rob Van Dam, they put everything on the line every time they go in the ring. So it was two young guys going out fighting to get over, and you felt it and you saw it, and it was pretty damn incredible, if you ask me. Is it fair to say that the hardcore title – was always sort of positioned as sort of a a joke, a funny ha-ha belt, except when Rob had it. It felt like when Rob had it, he was just working ECW matches. You know, the next night on Raw, he beat Matt Hardy in a hardcore match, and he sandwiched him inside of a ladder, and then five-star frog splashed the ladder. I mean, that's some stuff he would have done in ECW, and I feel like some of the other times it was more funny ha-ha. No, I don't think it was really funny, haha. I think that it was, you know, God, we introduced it with Mick Foley in a whole angle with Stone Cold Steve Austin. So it was something that was different, and it was a way to be able to have those type of matches and make those matches mean something if you're fighting for a championship versus just having a hardcore match to have a hardcore match. He works Raw in Philadelphia against the Jury, which is pretty cool. And the next day, he's on Heat. And he beat Jerry Lynn. And Jerry Lynn's probably his most famous, you know, opponent from the ECW days. They had a series of incredible matches. Did you ever see any of those matches from ECW with Jerry Lynn and Rob Van Dam? What did you think of those? Well, I saw a lot of, uh, I just saw a lot of Jerry Lynn and Rob Van Dam. And Jerry Lynn is another one of those guys. I go back to my days at Global Championship Wrestling, which was my first exposure to Jerry Lynn. And he was in an issue with the one, two, three kid who was the kamikaze kid back in the day. And I sat there in awe watching Jerry Lynn work. He was so damn smooth, so damn good and so believable. The stuff that he did with Rob, they had a natural rivalry. They had a natural rhythm in the ring and you believed everything that they did in the ring. So it, it was good. I dare say it was great. And I wish. That Jerry Lynn, you know, I wish there was a place for Jerry Lynn, um, it, it, it either the WWE Performance Center. I think he's a great teacher. I didn't think he was a great agent, but I do think he's a great teacher in teaching guys what to do. And, uh, he's absolutely tremendous in the ring, but the marriage and of Rob Van Dam and Jerry Lynn just worked. I mean, they, they worked in perfect harmony. So he's defending the hardcore title on house shows through late July and mid-August, working with guys like Test, Edge, Kane, and Jeff Hardy. And then he goes to a no contest with Kurt Angle on the August 13th Raw. And around this time, he starts to get a reputation for being reckless. And it happens because a lot of the guys start coming back through the curtain, busted open. Specifically, on this match with Angle, Angle's laying on the announce table, but he wasn't far up enough. So when RVD leg dropped him, his chin hit the table and he got busted open. When RVD gets to the back, he walks right past Vince, who was in Gorilla, and told Vince, sorry, I got your boy like that. And Vince said he'll learn to turn his head next time. 
And after that, Kurt's wife, Karen, posts online that Rob should be sent back to Ohio Valley Wrestling to learn to work. I don't know that that's advisable to write. Do you remember Karen sort of being hands-on with Kurt's career like this and sort of vocal? Yeah, Karen was vocal about Kurt's career, and Karen was vocal about what she thought, so she still is. Bless her little heart. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Okay, cool. So we're not going to get anything there. Let's talk a little. Well, no, bit. I mean she she was. That's that's all there is. But you know, as far as Rob being reckless, I think that Rob was snug. <laughs> he was definitely snug in the ring, and guys, you know, did come back and go, "Good God, man!" But here's the thing: anything that Rob was going to give you, Rob was willing to take. So if he kicked you hard, he wanted you to kick him back hard. Fair is fair, but, yeah, people did think he was a little stiff. A few years ago before Raw, um, I forget what city it was in, but I was hanging out with Rick but hours before doors opened at Raw, and everybody's just sitting around sort of bullshitting. And Mark Henry's hanging out, and one of the young guys who's fresh on the main roster comes up, and he's really excited that he's here, and he's going to be on Raw, and he's working with Rob Van Dam, and he's going on to great success in the WWE. And so Mark Henry's trying to sort of, Give him some advice, coach him up. And he says, who are you working with tonight? And he says, RVD. And Mark Henry says, oh, man, get your motherfucking hands up. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. (laughs) Good stuff. That's good advice, man. Get, Get the damn hands up. So around this time, Rob starts to believe that the politics are sort of driving him nuts and it's ruining his wrestling experience with the WWF. And and some of this is because he's got JR in one ear and Paul in the other. And he feels like he's sort of being pulled in two different directions here and given different advice from two different guys. Does that seem like a familiar situation with those two characters, Paul and JR? I could definitely see it. Absolutely. Because I could see Paul going in and with, you know, it's kind of like the, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder. In this case, I don't know which one's the angel and which one's the devil. However, uh, I could definitely see Paul tell him, allow me to help you guide your career, sir. And you need to do this. And they said that and this, that, and the other thing. And then I can see JR coming on the other side, letting him know, Hey man, you know, uh, I'm looking out for you there, boy. You know, I got your best interest at heart. Don't you forget that. So yeah, I could see that happening with those two. Definitely. And, and Paul, especially. Eventually Rob loses the 24 seven rule is the way he loses the hardcore title. He's actually wrestling Kurt Angle. But several people get involved, and Jeff Hardy actually comes away victorious. So in a match he had with Kurt Angle, Jeff Hardy's the champion. Uh, let's fast forward to SummerSlam. It goes down August 19th, 2001 in San Jose. And we've got RVD beating Jeff in a ladder match to regain the hardcore title. And Wade Keller says they went 16 minutes and 33 seconds. He gave it three and a half stars. 
I thought it was a pretty good match. Lots of crazy bumps. They're pulling out all the stops, sunset flips off the top of a ladder and other silliness. What did you think of this match? Uh, I hate ladder matches. I hate tables, ladders, and chairs matches because they're just so damn dangerous. And then you throw two guys like Rob Van Dam and Jeff Hardy in the ring um, who are willing to push those boundaries as far as they possibly can and I just hate seeing guys get hurt. But they threw caution to the wind, and they went out there, and they kicked each other's ass. It looked real. You know why? Because it was real. And Jeff and Rob, man, they put their bodies on the line out there, and it was a damn incredible match. It's one of those afterwards that you just want to go up to them and hug them and say, are you okay? Well, they were okay because they do a rematch two days later on SmackDown, and it's a pretty famous spot here. The match ends when RVD's on a table outside of the ring. Jeff climbs to the top of a very tall ladder and tries to do a swanton, but Rob moves, and Jeff crashes through the table. Pretty memorable spot here, and it's a hell of a thing to be doing two days after a ladder match at SummerSlam, is it not? Absolutely, because they were already beat up from a ladder match, and they're already hurting, so... <laughs> I hated putting them out there again and putting them in that position, but, you know, we did and got nobody to blame but myself. And, yeah, them busting their ass, man, and they continued to want to one-up their last performance every time they went out there. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, I guess, and this is something that we're going to have to talk about, Politics in the WWF has always been sort of Rob's chief issue. And he's working a lot of house show matches against Chris Jericho. And he says that Chris was very political and he felt like Jericho would sort of talk down to him and condescend and even, uh, change finishes. Talk to me a little bit about their interaction with, you know, was this just two guys who felt like they were jockeying for position for the same spot? Or how would you characterize their relationship and Chris Jericho at this time? You know, I never knew that there was a strained relationship between Chris and Rob. And I think that, you know, Chris Jericho is a pretty in-your-face kind of guy. And he's going to tell you what he thinks. And if he's going to go, he's going to fight for his spots. And he's going to fight for what he thinks is right. And that may rub some people the wrong way. Rob, kind of a laid-back guy a lot of times. But it same time, I think that Rob carries a lot of it inside and will let it will let it boil inside before bringing it out. But at the same time, he'll tell you what he feels. And I think Rob was frustrated for a lot of his run just in general because Rob kind of wants to go his own way and, and didn't like being told what to do. And when Jericho tries to change one of these finishes, he goes to fit Finley and has Fit sort of back him up on it. And then when Fit comes and tells Rob, he says, ah, fuck it, I'm just going home. Around this time, did you start to feel like maybe the wheels were running off for Rob when he would start to say, I'm just going home? Obviously, it's a different time. Wins and losses don't matter like they used to. But when a guy gets under your skin, you sort of just don't want to do anything for that motherfucker anymore, right? Well, when if somebody's answer is, yeah, I want to go home, which, by the way, I don't know that Rob ever said that, you know, to me like that or to anybody else in a position really of power. He may have felt that way and he may have said it to other people. Um, 
and, and definitely there were times when I know Rob was frustrated and frustrated with me in particular. I'm sure we're going to talk about that, you know, in this episode, but, uh, I don't remember him, you know, ever threatening to go home, but if, if he did, that would be something. And if he made that known in the locker room and that got out, then people probably would say, okay, why are we wasting time with him if he wants to go home? You guys really started to feature him, though, on the September 4th SmackDown. He gets a win over the world champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, clean in the middle. In a, in a lot of ways, it's almost like a dream match. It's a, the biggest star in ECW against the biggest star in WWE history, and Rob gets the win. What was the thinking here in putting Rob over Stone Cold in September? A test to kind of see, you know, what that reaction would be and see how people were going to buy it. The chemistry, also see what the chemistry was with Steve and RVD. Just see what we had there. So throw it out there and let's find out. It almost felt like you guys were really running a test to see, could we sort of position him as maybe like a new leader for the alliance and have Austin and Van Dam sort of feud? Well, was that maybe an idea of, you know, let's see how this goes? I tell you the um, the alliance stuff with Steve and Rob to me was where I really fell in love with RVD because I didn't really know him that well, you know, just kind of superficially. However, when we were doing stuff with Steve and Steve was doing the stuff with his watch and doing the what and listening to his watch and everything, we're shooting and I'm telling Rob just. Act natural, just react and, and play with it. Cause I wasn't a big one for scripts, as Brian Gewertz would tell you. Um, so I would let the guys freestyle a lot of times. If it worked, we went with it. So Steve's looking at his watch and putting his watch up to his ear and RVD takes the watch and puts the watch up to his ear. And it's like, what are you listening to, man? But it was, it was real and it was something that I think everybody wanted to do, but they're, looking for a script and no, I wasn't told to do that. And I told Rob freestyle with it and he did. And it was good. Steve and Rob had a chemistry in backstage in the vignettes. And that's what led us to go. There may be something here. And it was just a good chemistry in their match. Steve takes a Van Daminator and gets busted open in the process. Allegedly, Steve had no problem putting him over and knew that he was going to get cut open here. Any sort of blowback from that, do you think? You're cutting your biggest star? No. I mean, again, Steve Steve had no problem with it, and I don't know that he knew he was going to get busted open, but he knew that chair was coming. Shit happens, man. It ain't ballet. On the September 10th Raw, Rob loses the hardcore title to Kurt Angle by tapping out to the ankle lock at the top of the ramp. And after the match, Austin throws them both off the stage so then RVD pins Angle to regain the title, which is kind of fun. And he's really building momentum here. I mean, let's appreciate he's having matches with both Angle and Steve Austin. Um, there's sort of an interesting story that he had around 9-11. He was traveling with Mike Awesome. And, of course, 9-11 happens. And they're way out in San Antonio, not where they live. And... um a lot of stuff's going down, and we'll talk about that on another episode because there's a whole story here that we'd like to share. But that first SmackDown in Houston on September 13th is really the first public assembly in the country since the attacks happened. 
And on that match, or on that night, Rob beat Spike Dudley. And uh, I'd love to tell the story of 9-11. Do you want to sort of give everybody maybe a teaser of what we might be covering if we ever cover that 9-11 SmackDown? Oh, wow. Well, actually, okay, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little tease. Actually, on 9-11, within hours of planes flying in to the World Trade Center, this horrible tragedy, I was on the phone and I had the the happenstance to be on the phone with uh, President Bush's handler. Now, the father who, which again, rest in peace, Barbara Bush. She was a wonderful lady. I had the pleasure of meeting her and traveling with her. Great, great lady. And she'll be sorely missed. But her husband, President Bush, was a good friend of, of Mattress Mac, who we've talked about on this show. And in the midst of all these crazy things happening, our, our show being canceled and not knowing what the hell's going on, there's business things that have to happen as well. And I happened to find myself on a phone with Mr. Bush, President Bush's handler. And while everything's going on, I ask the question, could the president make the show if we have it live on Thursday? And if you guys would ever uh, vote for that, I'll tell you what happened after that. Uh, the handler's reaction, Vince McMahon's reaction, Stephanie's reaction, and what actually happened that day. But 9-11 was a horrible tragedy in America. And to me, that day was so damn personal. But we were able to pull off the first public assembly in the United States in Houston two days later. And we got we got the blessing from from the White House to, okay, you know what, let's go ahead and do this. We got the blessing from everyone in Houston that they were willing to do it and accept the responsibility. We had shitloads of security and the hoops that we had to jump through to actually have that event take place uh, was magnificent in and of itself. But uh, it's one of those, you know, where were you when that happened and and I was in Vince McMahon's room and we watched the second plane hit together live. So it, it was, uh, it was an incredible day. Well, not long after this, they start to tease an on-screen romance with Rob Van Dam and Stephanie McMahon Helmsley, who is the on-screen owner of ECW and in storyline married to Triple H. At this time, uh, Trips is out with a torn quad, but they're not yet married in real life. Um, this feels like a Vince McMahon idea who came up with Rob Van Dam being in a romantic relationship with Stephanie. It was Vince McMahon's idea because he wanted more emotion out of RVD and he felt that Rob was too one dimensional and felt that if there was a, a love interest or, or a relationship that we could get more out of Rob. So it was up to me to make that pitch. So, the pitch happens and Rob at the time was married and he himself would say he had an insecure wife who was giving him shit anytime an attractive woman was even nearby. So now that there's going to be some sort of romance on TV while she's not there, maybe that's not the best idea. And allegedly he shares that with you and you say, Oh, that's good. I didn't know. I mean, I don't know unless you tell me. So if you tell me what you're comfortable with or not, tell me, you know, that's the difference. So now that I know what you're comfortable with, 
I know we have something we can work with. We'll figure it out. So he gets to the building the next week and Brian gives him the script and it's the exact same thing. And it even goes a little further than what he was told it would be at first. I'll let you take the story from here, Bruce. Oh, well, the the story goes, uh, Rob wanted to kill me. Um, <laughs> Rob wanted to do the famous pick a hand with me and knock my head off. But the story that has never been told on the other side of that was I did go back and share Rob's concerns because when you go to a talent, you ask him, okay, do you have any problems with this angle or this story that we're going to tell? And Rob had concerns. He didn't want to do it. And his real-life situation, he didn't feel comfortable doing it. He didn't want to do it. And I made that known. Vince's reaction to that was, we make movies, damn it. This is make-believe. And he's an actor. He's, he's got, damn it, he's portraying a character. And it's not real. Well, that's tough to explain to the significant other on the other side that's sitting at home that has seen their real-life husband on a, quote, reality-type television show interacting with another female. And it, it's, again, when you mix reality and fantasy, it's it's a tough mixture. But I had brought it up, and Vince was going to talk to Rob about it. However, Brian got to Rob before Vince got to Rob and before I got to Rob. And so, allegedly, when he sees this, he takes great offense and feels like you guys are just trying to fuck with him. And he says something to Brian like, who do I have to smack across the face? Is it you? And allegedly, Brian can't wait to say, no, 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 this is Bruce's. <laughs> Hell yeah, he said no. This is Bruce's. And Rob says, well, where is he at? Talking about you. And Brian said, please don't smack Bruce. And Rob again says, where is he at? And allegedly, he says he's going to come find you and say, pick a hand. And Sort of the backstory on that is once upon a time, Taz, who was a, a locker room tough guy, and everybody knew that, allegedly had a little bit of a skirmish with Rob Van Dam, and Rob said, pick a hand. And when he did or didn't, he slapped the shit out of Taz, and they were cool after that. It sort of just hit the reset button on the relationship, and there was mutual respect. Well, allegedly, he's looking for you here. Because he's told you he doesn't want to do this. You said you'd take care of it, and now it's still happening, and it's worse. So he wants to play pick-a-hand. Did you see him that day? I did see him that day, and thank God I didn't play pick-a-hand with him. Uh, I don't want to get slapped by Rob Van Dam, especially when he's pissed. <laughs> Which probably be the only time you would get slapped by him. But I did see him. Uh, I think Stephanie got to him first, and I think Vince got to him, and he, he had calmed down by the time he ever got to me. But... I was actually looking for Rob first um, before Brian even got to him to let him know, hey, I'm going to bring you into Vince and let Vince explain it to him because Vince had his vision of what he wanted Rob to do. And I had explained Rob's position and why he didn't want to do it, and Vince was adamant that he wanted Rob to do this, and he would talk to him. So I wanted to get to Rob first, bring him into Vince. Brian got to Rob first, kind of thinking that, I guess – that we had already gotten to Rob and that he was cool with it. But, uh, yeah, thank God cooler heads prevailed because I'd probably have had a, I probably would have picked the left one and that would have hurt the shit out of the right side of my face. But either one, I'm not sure I really want to 
want to take, quite hey, frankly. Even Stephanie was trying to sell it. Hey, this is just acting, and we'll do it funny. Like, I'm after you, but you'll be oblivious and, and sort of, you know, in your own world. Meanwhile, Jericho is trying to get in my pants, and she's all about RVD, but RVD is all about RVD. And then the angle just sort of fades away. Well, where was this going? I mean, were they going to make little RVD babies that started pointing to themselves? No, it was it was a love triangle, and it was a it was a story of to play out on television. But Rob wasn't comfortable with it, and we didn't do it. So, I mean, that was the end of it, and you moved on. It was a way to just further their characters and tell a story. And I think everybody can relate to someone having a crush on them and and relationship stories. The Unforgiven pay-per-view goes down on September 23rd in Pittsburgh, and RVD beats Jericho here in a hardcore match to retain the title. And the next night on Raw, he's challenging The Rock for the WCW world title, and it's the first ever singles match between them and the first time that Rob officially has a world title match because his match with Austin, of course, was non-title. Well, of course, Rock wins the match, and this is the first time that these guys had faced off did you see money in that match? I mean, it is sort of fun to look back at this time and say, man, Rob's working with Jeff Hardy. He's working with Kurt Angle. He's working with Chris Jericho. He's working with The Rock. He beat Stone Cold. You're pulling out all the stops here for him. What did you think of his match here with The Rock? I thought it was good. You know, I, I don't I don't think you can put your finger on and say, hey, man, that was a bad match with Rob. And maybe that's because it's like uh, everybody's going to shit all over me for this one. I, I look at John Cena. You know why I like John Cena? Because he doesn't work like everybody else. He's half-assed clumsy in the ring. He looks like he's clumsy. But he knows what the hell he's doing, and he's different. So I like that. He's unique. That's what I loved about Van Damme. All of his stuff looked good, so probably too good because it was probably snug. But he was different. In everything that he did, he locked up different. He locked up snug, and it felt real, man. And it was just the way that he handled himself that you could, you like the guy. Easy to like. On the October 2nd SmackDown, Rob Van Dam gets a win over the WWF World Champion Kurt Angle. And the stipulation here is if Rob Van Dam beats Kurt Angle, and Stone Cold Steve Austin gets a title match against Angle for the title on Monday Night Raw. Austin beat Angle a few days later and becomes the world champion. And it all was set up by RVD beating the champ again, this time in Kurt Angle. Let's fast forward a few days. On October 7th, Rob Van Dam beat Raven in a hardcore match. And I bring this up because allegedly after the match, Raven sort of corners Rob and say, why'd you hit me with the seam of the trash can? And RVD allegedly says, oh, they have seams? How great is that? Yeah, well, I can see that, too. Uh, the October 15th Raw, he's again challenging The Rock for the WCW title, and he wins when Stephanie gets involved. What did The Rock think of working with Rob Van Dam? As far as I know, I think The Rock enjoyed working with Van Dam because he was fun to work with, <laughs> you know, if you like that style. And uh, I think Rock, their styles kind of meshed, and they had good matches. Hey, speaking of the Rock, when I was at Foley's show the other night, there's a guy in the crowd who's, uh, you know, they're doing a and a portion, and uh, the guy stands up and says, I just want to let you know you're my favorite wrestler of all time. And, of course, Foley thanks him and says, hypothetically, 
what would you say if The Rock were sitting here instead of me? And everybody sort of laughs. And the guy who's a listener says, oh, definitely top five. Top five. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. Um, let's talk a little bit about the reactions that Rob is getting during this time. Arguably, in his match with The Rock, he's getting as many or maybe more cheers than The Rock. Was there ever any consideration with making him the guy here? Because it feels like you're almost there. He's working with The Rock. He's beat Austin. He's beat Angle. Was there ever consideration in late 01 to just saying, fuck it, we got to just try this? Paul Heyman made that. And again, this may be a situation of... As I've stated before, where someone in your corner can work to your detriment. And Paul was in Rob's corner a lot, you know, maybe to his detriment sometimes, saying, you know, Rob Van Dam is the only one that can carry this company. We need to do something new with Rob Van Dam. So to that extent, it may have hurt Rob's chances more than helped them sometimes when Paul would get on Vince's nerves. Uh, we did discuss it, and we did look at Rob as potentially being that guy. Uh, timing, Vince wanted to get him over more. Vince felt that he needed more time. Didn't feel he was over yet. We're building towards the October 1st No Mercy pay-per-view, and on the way here, he's technically a heel because he's with the Alliance, but he's getting cheered so much, and so they're sort of teasing some things. And on the go-home episode of SmackDown before that event, we see RVD getting out of a limo with Vince, and he frog splashes Austin at the end of the show, sort of planting the seeds of doubt that he might be defecting to the WWF and maybe winning the title. Well, they have a three-way match here, and in this match, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin defending his title against both Kurt Angle and Rob Van Dam. Of course, Austin gets the win after hitting RVD with the stunner. It's a big deal to headline a pay-per-view, especially knowing you just debuted in July. Here you are in October, and you're working on top on pay-per-view with the biggest star in the business and the next big thing in Kurt Angle. Um, what do you remember about their match? It feels like a, uh, a pretty memorable match if you go back and watch it, but I don't know that people still talk about it maybe the way they should. Wade Keller dug it. He gave it three and three quarters. But it certainly felt like you guys were at least maybe considering the idea of a Rob Van Dam win here. But RVD himself would say, I just felt like the third wheel. I was the added attraction to an already existing feud. Well, you know what? He was. And that's probably a correct feeling because Vince didn't really think that Rob was over yet, but was willing to, to try it on and put him in this position to see how he'd do. Um, the jury was still out. So that feeling, I think, was justified on Rob's part that, you know, maybe they're just putting me in here. And Rob wasn't feeling it, really. And it was a force. But at the same time, there was such great chemistry with those three guys. And it was a, a groundswell that we didn't expect that was taking place underneath all this that you really couldn't deny. I mean, to the point that Austin allegedly backstage tells him one day, kid, they're about to strap a rocket ship to your back. Was there, I mean, we've told us that Paul was sort of campaigning for him. Was there anybody trying to undermine that that you recall? Was there anybody who was like, I don't buy it? You know, I, I don't think that Triple H was completely sold on him and didn't feel that he was over to that extent. I don't think that Vince really felt that he was over to that extent. And I think that on Vince's part, that it was more of a 
He just wasn't feeling it, but it was also, I, I, my opinion was Paul pushing so damn hard that that made Vince push away. Let me ask you this. Uh, who was Triple H pushing for at the time? Like, who did he say, oh, this guy here, let me put him over. This this should be our top guy. Uh, probably, I don't know, probably Austin and, and Rock probably at that time. They were the top guys. It just feels funny to me that, I mean, first of all, I appreciate you saying that because I didn't expect you to say it. But the narrative online has always been Triple H fucking held Rob Van Dam back. And he wasn't kept- a big fan when he first came in. He definitely was not a big fan of Van Dam's and, and didn't get it. He liked Rob, but he wasn't a big fan of his work and didn't think that he was over to the extent that the, I guess, the Internet crowd and Paul, for for example, would push him to be. So do you think that maybe some of Triple H's reluctance to sort of buy in was based on him just being sort of ugh to Paul Heyman? Uh, I don't know. I, I really don't know. You know, there was there's also the the reality of trying to get promos out of RVD sometimes were a chore. And I think that guys would get lazy and go with the, you know, oh, hey, cool, dude, and go with the stoner almost answers instead of just let Rob be Rob. Just let Rob be Rob, and he can be a sarcastic, yep. um, quick, yep. pretty damn entertaining guy on his own. However, when they would write things of what they saw for RBD, they didn't get it. They didn't get it, and, and it's kind of like CM Punk. It was the same situation. What's a CM Punk? You know, what was an RVD? Well, they all knew Rob liked to smoke dope, so he's a stoner, and he's laid back, and he's cool, and that's what he does backstage. So let's put that on air. But if you let Rob go and you just started talking to him, uh, he's quick, he's funny, but, man, he's got an edge to him. And I don't know that he ever – got the chance with the exception of the the stuff that he did with Austin and that alliance to really ever display that, in my opinion. Well, they're still putting him over in a big way. I mean, the night after this No Mercy pay-per-view, he's working with Big Show, and it's one of the more creative finishes. It's a hardcore match. It's one of the more creative finishes I remember. RVD has a fire extinguisher. And he's trying to shoot it into Big Show's face, but Big Show's holds up a chair to block the fire extinguisher, and Van Dam just Van Daminates the fuck out of him and kicks it in his face, hits the five star frog splash, gets the pin. Pretty creative finish. Oh, I loved it. I think that was a Fit Finley finish. I don't know for sure, but I did love that, and I remember that vividly because <laughs> um, you go back and watch it. Van Dam does kick the living shit out of the chair, which was funny as shit too. He works some high-profile stuff here, even on SmackDown. October 23rd, he pins The Rock in a hardcore title match. He gets a shot for Edge's Intercontinental title on October 29th, but he doesn't make it. Uh, but he does retain his hardcore title on SmackDown on October 30th. He beats his old friend Taz on November 3rd and 4th, and he beats Kane on November 13th. Let's get to November 18th, which was Survivor Series. We've got Team Alliance, which is RVD, Austin, Angle, Booker T, and the Dudleys losing to Team WWF, which is Rock, Undertaker, Kane, Jericho, and Big Show. Uh, a lot of guys thought 
that this is the idea for the invasion. And this is essentially what everybody thought would be the biggest thing in the history of wrestling to have ECW and WCW on WWF TV. But I think everybody sort of knew, man, this is going to wind up with the WWF here. I'm sure we're going to talk about the invasion and this particular pay-per-view in more detail. What do you remember about this match where RVD was eliminated uh, by Jericho, but he himself got to eliminate Kane in the process? Not a whole lot other than by the time we got to Survivor Series, Vince was done with the whole alliance thing against WWF and, and was just tired of it and felt it was a failed experiment and we needed to move on. So just cut the cord, move on, next. The next night on Raw, he loses a handicap match two-on-one to the Dudleys. And then on SmackDown, he loses a handicap match to Jericho and the Dudleys, but he's teaming with The Rock here. So even though he's in losing efforts, still positioned as a big-time top guy. Let's go to the Vengeance pay-per-view, December 9th, 2001. This is where he finally loses this hardcore title, and he does it against the newly turned heel Undertaker. Undertaker beat him in 11 minutes and 8 seconds. According to The Torch, uh, Wade gave it three and a quarter stars. It does feel like a uh, clash of styles here, and it's sort of fun to see like a rolling thunder on The Undertaker. You just don't imagine that that's the thing. What do you remember about this match at Vengeance 01? Well, it was a clash of styles. However, Undertaker really wanted to work with RVD and thought that that clash of styles, the, the different type styles, would complement each other. In my opinion, it did, because Taker being a brawler, you don't expect that kind of style and to, to be able to get Undertaker off of his game. Rob, with all of his flips and flies and all the bullshit that RVD does, was another way to attack the Undertaker that had never been done before. Um, I remember Paul was just so dead set against the Undertaker RVD match because he thought Taker would eat RVD up and it was to the contrary I thought that Taker really complimented Rob and they had a hell of a match allegedly uh, some uh, on some episode or maybe just in private I forget but you told me that this is the match where Vince McMahon sort of fell in love with RVD his match with the Undertaker and they was- beat the shit out of each other were you in Gorilla? I mean, what was Vince's reaction to this? He, he, sort of tell me more about this Vince falling in love with RVD moment here. <laughs> Good shit. God damn it. They're bringing it. Vince liked the, liked the fact that, you know, it was, it was a different style. It was a different side of Undertaker and felt that RVD brought out a different dimension in Undertaker. And contrary, he thought that to the other side, he felt that Undertaker brought out a different side of RVD. And it was something that he saw in the fact that Rob hung in there with the Undertaker and that they had such of a good match. It made him think, all right, we got a player here. And Undertaker endorsing Van Dam definitely helped too. So let's talk about the little details here because Rob sort of points to this match and says this match is one of the moments where you sort of could showcase the difference between the WWE and ECW and ECW. They didn't really know what they were going to do. They would just go out there and do it. But with the WWF, you had some more planned stunts. And so one of the things they did here is a cross body from the bleachers to the undertaker and they fall onto a bunch of stuff. 
and you guys had your magic folks load up a bunch of baby powder underneath it. So it creates a visual effect and nobody would have ever even thought of that in ECW. I think it's pretty cool when a wrestler goes out of his way to sort of talk about the behind the scenes production folks who helped make that happen. Would that have been a Richie Posner deal? I don't, I don't know if Richie was, yeah, Rich, it would have been a Richie Posner deal. I was going to say, I don't know if Richie was here at this time, but he definitely was. And yeah, that would have been something that Richie would have had. And, and we were all about, you know, making the effect. You got to think television and you have to think what's going to read on TV and be the best visual for television. And that's what we did. So they're going to uh, December 17th here, and RVD is wrestling Jericho for the undisputed title, and Ric Flair is the special guest referee. RVD winds up winning by DQ. And around this same time, allegedly, Johnny Ace is trying to get Rob Van Dam to sort of let the crowd know when he's getting fired up, when he's mad. They don't want you to see you know, the laid-back RVD all the time. So he says, when you've had too much, you just sort of snap. Like old school Jerry Lawler would pull down the strap. Maybe you could take out your ponytail. Do you remember there being a conversation about him not showing enough fire and that being sort of a soapbox deal for Johnny Ace with Rob? Well, it, it, it wasn't necessarily a soapbox deal with Johnny Ace. It was a soapbox, de- soapbox deal with Vince McMahon. And... I had the I had the same conversations with Rob about you know what pisses you off. Um, we need to see more emotion. We need to see more range. We need to see anger. We need to see happiness. We need to see fear. We need to see a range of emotions from you. Rob's response was, "Is if I tell you what pisses me off, then you'll have power over me." So no, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you that power. I'm not gonna tell you what pisses me off. You know, I'll I'll do what I think I need to do. Um, so Johnny, you know, took that from conversations that we all had about trying to help RVD and get more of a range out of him, probably took it upon himself to, to make it his own, but that was coming from Vince and that was coming from creative, just wanting to see more emotion out of RVD. Allegedly, everybody's coming up to him at TV that day before the match with Jericho saying, you got to get angry. Don't forget to be angry. Be angry. Think of things that make you mad. Be angry. And supposedly Jericho says right before they go out, imagine a hit on your wife. And that really pissed Rob off to the point that he had to actually cool down afterwards because he was really in the moment at that time. Yeah, I think that everybody pissed him off so much by telling him to get pissed off all day. <laughs> so we found what pissed him off. Keep telling him to get pissed off. Well, he's probably pissed off when he found out what he was doing at the Royal Rumble. It's his very first one. Uh, they're in Atlanta, January 20th, 2002. He comes in at number 29, gets a big pop, doesn't eliminate anyone. And as soon as he gets in the ring, Triple H pedigrees him. Uh, he has to sell it for a minute, and then uh, uh, Booker T picks him up and throws him the fuck out. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just saying, just a few minutes ago, you're like, yeah, Triple H did not fucking like him. It's just uh, humorous to me. You know, you're over like Rover. You've beat all the top guys. You've been positioned. Oh, you're in? Cool. Pedigree. Get the fuck out. It was written that way. I know and, it was. And no, and Hunter didn't have any say-so in the writing of that. So there you go. Cool. 
I'm not kissing. Fuck you and your kissing ass shit. You, we'll talk about Ric Flair here in a little bit, and you can get your chapstick out. Oh, what did Ric Flair do with Rob Van Dam? Did he? I don't know. Rick, we'll get there, and we'll talk about it. Ric Flair held down Rob Van Dam? I, I never heard that. I don't know. Oh, fucker. Fucker. Uh, our, <laughs> our, hey, have we gotten our fuck quota in this show yet? <laughs> hey, by the way, on the network, here's what that would sound like. Oh, yeah? What? Oh, yeah, and... Oh, yeah, what? Uh, yeah. And yeah, but mother. The, my favorite part. You. It's now we've got forget Dave Meltzer. And then when you do the cheeseburger order at the end, when you cut me off, it's just, you're just going to yell mother. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I go ahead and go to talk. So no way. Mother! <laughs> Hey, if you want the F word, guys, start tagging WWE Network and uh, tell them tell them to put the F back in. Uh, so then RVD is in a brief feud with the returning Goldust. Goldust attacks him, and that sets up the No Way Out 2002 pay per view on February 17th. RVD gets a win here, 12 minutes and 15 seconds. Jr. even says, "I don't know why Goldust is after RVD." Uh, only two stars from Wade Keller, who wrote, not bad, but the crowd wasn't much into it other than RVD signature spots. It does feel a little weird that we're going from world title matches and Rock and Austin and Jericho and Angle, and now we're with Goldust. Was, was, did Rob Van Dam sort of piss somebody off in the office here, or what happened for this shift? Because it certainly feels like a shift. Well, it's just a shift, and... Momentum and, and you, you can't stay on top all the time. And yes, you got to go up and down and different things, but it was just gold dust was back looking for something gold dust to do and not having anything for Rob at that time. And Robin gold dust it sometimes you look at two guys, you don't have anything for at the time and you put them together. The next day he gets a win with edge over Regal and storm. And then he works a couple of house show matches where Mr. Perfect goes over and he had just returned at the Royal Rumble. So that's pretty cool. And he says he remembers working with Perfect on TV and they do a spot where he's supposed to cross body him to the floor. And when Rob was rolling around on the floor, Kurt said the camera missed it. So we're going to have to do it again. And they redid the exact same spot. And Rob says that's sort of changing of an era to him because if they used to send a guy out and tell you that they missed up a spot and you had to redo it again. But in this case, that didn't have to happen. What do you remember about sort of horror stories? And even Ric Flair has one with Macho Man about when Vince says, God damn it, do it again. We did that. We just did that all the time. If there was a screwed up spot, if it was taped. Right. Now, if it was live, you eat it. But if it was taped, like on a SmackDown or something, and we had the ability, uh, I would sit at Gorilla, and I would look, and I could see. I could see all the cameras. I knew if we didn't have a good shot to cover something, if something was screwed up, I would just tell the referee, tell him to do it again. And the referee would usually let guys know. Sometimes I'd have cameramen tell them. Just tell them to go back and do it all over again. They would know what they screwed up and be able to get back in the right position. WrestleMania 18 goes down, and RVD is in the opener. And he beats William Regal to win the Intercontinental title. Wade gave it two and three-quarter stars. Pretty fun little opener for WrestleMania 18. What did you think of RVD in his uh, WrestleMania debut here? Well, we talked about this when I thought it was a damn good match because, again, 
Another reason I like William Regal. I'm a fan of his. Different. He wasn't the same. You know, he had that uh, British style, which is a little bit different style than the American catches catch can. And you're getting in there with a high flyer and somebody like RVD, who's unorthodox. Man, I thought they had a hell of a match, and it was a great way to start WrestleMania. It's a fun sort of memory too, because you got to remember he was at WrestleMania three, where he saw Ricky Steamboat. <laughs> beat Macho Man for the Intercontinental title, and now 15 years later, he's winning the Intercontinental title. It's a cool story, man. Uh, it really is, yeah. The next night, he uh, successfully defends against Christian, and then he has a match where he beats Mr. Perfect on Sunday Night Heat. But the big show is what we're talking about here. March 25th, we would see Rob beat Kurt Angle by DQ, and then later is the draft where Rob is going fourth overall from Ric Flair why was it decided to have Rob on Raw? We've always heard that that's sort of, you know, the A show, at least in Vince's mind, and I know you'll argue that, but that's certainly the perception a lot of people have. Who would have campaigned for Rob to be on Raw if you had to pick? Well, probably the Raw writers looking at Rob. We had to change it up and looking for big names to change it up and mix it up a little bit, uh, to go from SmackDown to Raw, and thought Rob would be a good mix on Raw, that's all. We see um, a, a bit of a feud start with uh, Eddie Guerrero, and they actually wrestle at Backlash April 21st. And here we would see Eddie beat RVD to win the Intercontinental title, and he does so with a frog splash. Um, it's a three-star match, according to Wade Keller, but he wrote, one of the hardest impacts you'll ever see at 10 minutes in when Guerrero snaps RVD to the mat with a sunset flip off the top rope, really cool move. What do you remember about this match where it was a battle of the frog splashes? Well, now I say, fuck Wade Keller. Uh, I thought that the match was magic. Uh, Eddie Guerrero and, and RVD, uh, you know... <sighs> Battle of the, of the Frog Splash, just like you said. And these were two guys that went out there and they had worked before. They, I believe they'd worked in, in ECW before. Not a lot, but they wanted to work with each other. And anytime you get two guys that want to work with each other and they have chemistry outside of the ring, the chemistry inside the ring is going to show. And Eddie Guerrero and RVD, in my eyes, was a dream match because they were just both so damn good. And it happened again on May 19th at Judgment Day. Eddie would beat Rob Van Dam in 10 minutes and 47 seconds. Again, it's another opening match with the Intercontinental title, but a good match. Three stars. And uh, the next night on Raw, Rob is walking to the ring, and The Undertaker comes out and attacks him from behind, beating him up badly, where Rob even gets a lot of color for this. And later in the night, they have a match for the Undisputed title, and Rob hits him with the rolling thunder and gets the three count, but Taker's foot was on the rope. So RVD was announced as the new champion, given the belt, has a huge crowd pop, and then Flair comes out and says Taker's foot was on the rope, ordered the match to be restarted, and Taker winds up winning. Pretty old school but awesome dusty finish when done well. What do you remember about this night where they teased that RVD was the champ and had beat the Undertaker? Nice little swerve, get people talking. And, you know, the, the biggest regret was not doing more with it. 
beyond one night. However, you know, Vince was big on, you know, let's give them something. We're not going to give them in house shows and maybe we aren't going to go beyond it, but it was a wonderful build for the night and gave people a swerve there at the end. I wasn't a big fan of the finish, but it worked and it was done well. It is sort of weird that you say these two guys working together is what Vince fell in love with. And then they do this world title thing with him and then just it, nothing, never again. Yeah. It's crazy because it, it worked. It was good. It's almost like somebody's in the back holding him down. It's weird. BrucePritchard.com. May 27th, RVD beats Eddie Guerrero in a classic ladder match and regains the Intercontinental title. But that's not the story here. The story is during the match, some fucking idiot ran into the ring and tried to push the ladder down while Eddie's still on it. Eddie jumps down and punches the fuck out of that guy. What do you remember about this? <laughs> I remember thanking God that Ed, that's all Eddie did was punching the fuck out of the guy. It's just so stupid. And for anybody out there, don't ever run into the ring for any reason whatsoever. Now, in the old days, what would have happened is that guy would have got the living shit kicked out of him so that he wouldn't have been able to walk out of the arena. And there were old time promoters like Bill Watts that if you didn't kick the shit out of, out of a fan that ran in or jumped in, then you'd be fired. So the fact that the guy ran in, tried to push the ladder over when Eddie was on it, it could have really done some damage to Eddie. So Eddie was pissed about that. And in defense of his life there, uh, the guy's lucky he was able to walk out of the building. We're headed to King of the Ring here. And on the way, they have a qualifying match where Rob pins Eddie. And then in round one, he beats X-Pac. Uh, and then eventually, he gets to the semifinals. And this happens at the actual King of the Ring pay-per-view in Columbus on June 23rd. And he's working with Chris Jericho. RVD gets the win in 14 minutes and 33 seconds. Three and a half stars. But after the match, Jericho attacks RVD with the walls of Jericho to quote unquote get his heat back, according to Wade Keller. What did you think of this match here, King of the Ring? I enjoyed it. I thought, that, you know, and again, it's funny that you brought up at the very beginning that there was a little heat there between RVD and Jericho because I always thought that they had damn good matches and performed it every time that they were given the ball. So that was a little shocking to me, and this was another example of them going out and delivering. The main event that night isn't maybe exactly what everybody was expecting, but maybe you should in hindsight. It's the King of the Ring finals, and Rob Van Dam loses to Brock Lesnar in about five and a half minutes. RVD gets in a little bit of offense early, but then... Brock just dominates from there. He does sneak in the five-star frog splash, but Heyman interferes, and RVD is not victorious here. Uh, two stars from Wade Keller, who wrote solid for a five-minute match. What do you think of this? Because it does feel like two of the biggest prospects in the company are in the main event. Well, yes, they were. The, the biggest prospect in the company, definitely, in Brock Lesnar. However, Brock was still pretty damn green, and he was ready for prime time, but I don't know that it was the best damn match in the world because this was, without a doubt, a styles clash, and they're, they're, they just didn't really mesh that well. And it, it was awkward at times but passable and it was a way to get Brock over. So it, it served its purpose in that, in that regard. Fun little story from this match. 
Rob has said that he didn't really know what Brock's finish was. So Brock is trying to describe the F5 to him, but he's not getting it. And eventually Brock just says, don't worry about it. I'll get you there. And Rob is sort of thinking, well, a lot of people say that, but I'm heavier than they imagine. They probably think I'm 200 pounds, but I'm over 240. Uh, you're probably underestimating me. And then, of course, he gets out there and says, well, he made me feel like I was five pounds. Well, Rob Van Dam is thick. And I've heard a lot of guys talk about how they think that Rob is a lot lighter than he actually is until you get in the ring with him. And he's thick and he's heavy. Um, but Brock Lesnar is what we call cockstrong. Strong like bull. The next night on Raw, RVD interrupts Brock's coronation, and they have a match later that night. And Rob actually has Brock pinned after the split-legged moonsault, but Heyman interferes. And then Rob hit Heyman with the five-star frog splash, and then Brock power bombs him through the announcer's table. So you guys are really still pushing him here in a big way. Uh, on July 8th, we see RVD team up with Goldust, Booker, Bubba, and Spike to take on Eddie, Nash, Benoit, Big Show, and X-Pac. And RVD even chases Shawn Michaels up the ramp, who was ringside with the NWO, and Lesnar attacked RVD and F5'd him on the ramp. This is the match that pretty famously had Kevin Nash tear his quad, essentially walking across the ring, and people still talk about it to this to this day. I know we're going to do a Diesel episode sometime, but what do you remember about this match and this Kevin Nash injury? Step, step. Ah! fall down um <laughs> you know that's pretty much what we all remember about it that's the only thing that was a takeaway on, on that match for me because it was you saw it happen and you're thinking what the hell happened to kevin did he twist his ankle did he turn his knee and the rest as they say is history but it changed the course of the whole damn summer with that one quad tear because at that point everything's getting changed all over again Let's go to Vengeance. July 21st, we would see Rob beat Lesnar by DQ to retain his title. Uh, he beat Brock here in 9 minutes and 39 seconds. Of course, Heyman causes the DQ again when it looks like Brock is about to lose. Um, if the thought is, or sort of talk me through this, Van Dam isn't the king of the ring, but he's sort of being booked in a stronger position here. Is this because you weren't really sold on Brock at this point, and maybe you were teeter-tottering with who needed to have the push, or is this just a way to sort of keep this story going? Well, no, it was just a logical match to to, to have with Brock coming off of the King of the Ring, but still, at the same time, it made it made Brock look good, and it was, you know, Heyman on the DQ, so it wasn't a clean finish, and it was a, kind of 50-50 to make both guys look good. Let's talk about the next night on Raw, because it's Intercontinental versus European, title for title, and it's going to be a unification ladder match. RVD beats Jeff Hardy to retain the Intercontinental title and win the European. It unifies them and therefore retires the European title. Why was it decided to sort of abolish the European title here, Bruce? Too many championships, and Vince wasn't a big fan of the European championship. Kind of like I'm not a big fan of the U.S. championship. Well, I think it's a beautiful title that our friend Dave Milliken makes. Okay. On uh, Raw, July 29th, Benoit beat Rob to win the Intercontinental title, and this match sort of comes out of nowhere. 
I don't think at this point they'd wrestled in a singles match at all. Why was it decided to take the belt off Rob here and put it on Benoit? It was Benoit's time. And <laughs> if you want a great match, put Benoit in there with RVD. They will beat the shit out of each other. Well, they did. And on August 12th, RVD beat Jeff Hardy to earn a match against Benoit at SummerSlam. And then come SummerSlam, August 25th, he does indeed beat Benoit to regain the Intercontinental title. And Rob says before the match, he remembers Benoit saying, I want you to kick me as hard as you fucking can. And <laughs> Rob remembers thinking, I'm going to make him sorry he said that. And he says he kicked him so hard that his eyes sort of seemed to cross. But Chris loved it. What do you remember of this match? Well, you know, there were a group of those guys uh, like Jericho and uh, RVD, Benoit, Perry Saturn, guys like that, that used to just kind of have an agreement. Hit me as hard as you want, anywhere you want. Make it stiff. Just don't hit me in the face. And the harder, the better. So there there were guys that just loved that. And these were two guys that, that loved getting in the ring and mixing it up and being as stiff as they possibly could. The next night on Raw, in another unification match, this time Rob beat Tommy Dreamer to unify the Intercontinental and the Hardcore title. So now the Hardcore title is retired. And I guess essentially Rob here is the last European and the last Hardcore champion during this era. Um, Rob was a little disappointed that the Hardcore title was retired because he was having fun and motivated when he got to use some of those weapons and whatnot. Who was sort of anti the hardcore title? Is this another Vince? There's too many titles. I don't like hardcore or somebody else involved in that decision. That was the mandate with Vince. He was just there. We had too many titles. He wanted to reduce the number of titles, make the few that we have mean more. And X on the hardcore. It was, it was time to move on. I guess it's worth mentioning here that RVD did indeed get a win over triple H on September 2nd. RVD's teaming with Ric Flair to take on Triple H and Jericho. This is where you kiss ass, not me. Oh, yeah, RVD shouldn't have beaten Triple H. Hunter should have pedigreed his ass. Like he did at the Royal Rumble and embarrassed him in his first Royal Rumble, I agree. Why is that embarrassing? Well, I mean, the Bushwhacker looked the motherfucker. I didn't. I mean, pretty much. So September 9th, RVD wins a four-corner match against Big Show, Jeff Hardy, and Jericho. And the gist is you get to be the number one contender for the world title. So the next week, of course, he loses the Intercontinental title to Jericho. Now, most people would say, well, that's because you're going to put the world title on him. Let's see what happens. September 2nd, Unforgiven, Triple H beats RVD to retain the title after Flair comes in and hit RVD with a sledgehammer. And this started Triple H and Flair's alliance officially, and it eventually became Evolution. The match goes 18 minutes and 17 seconds. And here's what Wade Keller had to say. Good crowd heat for the opening antics between the two. RVD out-wrestled Hunter in the early minutes. Hunter went to ringside to catch his breath. RVD had a water bottle thrown at him and mocked Triple H's water spouting routine. Uh, Hunter got even more upset and charged RVD, who gave him an arm drag, followed by a hip toss and a side headlock. Eventually, Ross points out that RVD was winning with basics rather than with dazzling kicks and flips. Not an all-out intense match, but a very good action, climaxing with RVD, signaling for the five-star frog splash. He scored a visual three-count on Hunter, and RVD jumped to ringside to get the ref's attention. And Hunter gave RVD a low blow from behind and then grabbed a sledgehammer from under the ring. 
RVD leaped and kicked the hammer out of Hunter's hands. Flair ran to the ring, picked up the sledgehammer, um, and then turns and nails RVD in the gut with the hammer. Hunter looks shocked, but nevertheless, pedigrees RVD and covers him. Ref, the, the ref is thrown into the ring by Flair. Flair looks at Hunter and says, you're the man, and hands him the big gold belt. Three and a half stars. What did you think of the match? I thought they had a hell of a match. And, you know, it's it's funny when you said, oh, what what predictably, what should have happened was because RVD lost Intercontinental title, we're going to put the world title on him. And unfortunately, sometimes that was the thought that, okay, we're going to do that, and we're going to uh, swerve the smart fans who think that's what's going to happen, and that's not going to happen. It's a story. And, yes, people were probably leaning there, which, again, makes the Flair turn and the marriage with Hunter and Flair mean more, and he got screwed. So it was a good story. RVD clearly here has said that he felt like Hunter was holding him down and that Hunter was always cordial to him and they were always cordial to each other. But he just doesn't believe Triple H saw in him what the fans did. And in later years, he's almost freestyled. Maybe he's right because he's making the decisions up there and I'm not. Um, was there anybody else that was sort of down on Rob or, or was it just Hunter holding him down personally? No, there were, there were some agents that weren't, you know, completely sold on RVD and not, and probably because it was of the stigma of ECW and the, the hardcore style that, just carry, you know, it was like that black cloud almost sometimes. But from the match, from this match, I remember Hunter going, okay, you know what, man, that was a good match and, and liking Rob. At first, Hunter didn't see it. And he really, you know, he was vocal about it going, I don't get it. And that was the feeling backstage. A lot of people in wrestling at this point think that Rob Van Dam is one of, if not the best performer in the company, at least on this run he had this first year. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which was still a thing, um, gave him the number one in the PWI 500 that year and said that he out-wrestled everybody else on the roster. Tommy Dreamer tells a different story, though. He's briefly on the booking team for Hiccup around WrestleMania 19 in 2003, and Triple H didn't have an opponent yet. We just covered this. And allegedly, Tommy suggests Rob, but Triple H sort of shrugs that off as being ridiculous because Rob's not over enough. Do you remember that conversation? I, I don't remember Tommy Dreamer ever being in a creative meeting with us. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we've talked about that a couple times. I don't ever remember Tommy being a part of any creative meeting that I was a part of anyway. After this, he's teaming with Jeff Hardy on Raw to take on Jericho and Christian, and they even do a world tag team title TLC match, uh, where they're, you know, not only taking on Jericho and Christian, but Bubba and Spike Dudley and even Kane and Hurricane. Um, sort of a fun deal. October 13th, here's a fun one, a lumberjack match. Triple H beat RVD. Huh, surprise. Uh, no Mercy goes down October 20th, and it's RVD taking on Ric Flair. They go two and a quarter stars in eight minutes. Um, Keller would write that it was a bit of a styles clash. What did you think of uh, sort of getting bumped down the card? It makes logical sense, I guess, that you're main eventing a pay-per-view and the guy who costs you a world title match, you're going to take him on at the next pay-per-view. 
But at this time, going from Triple H in the main event to Ric Flair, quite a fall month to month, isn't it? So working with Ric Flair is a fall, and that's a demotion. Well, I think a lot of people thought he'd be the world champion, and Flair would not have been in a world title match here at, at this time. Well, actually, yeah, Rick was in world title matches after this. On, on Raw, the, not on the, pay-per-view. The Never time on here. Pay-per-view. What? Not on pay-per-view. Don't talk to me about Raw. I'm talking about pay-per-view. Well, he was. He was in world title matches. And Raw, some people would argue, is even more important than pay-per-view matches. Paychecks didn't. Paychecks said pay-per-view. Sure they did. And nobody made more money on Raw than they made on the pay-per-view. Sure they did. H- who? When a lot did, of people. When did that happen? Give me a, a lot time. of people. Give me a time and date. Give me an April seventeenth. <laughs> <laughs> but lo- no, you know what? Um, this was logical because of the story we were telling. I, no, I and to- Flair I was totally the one agree. that screwed RVD in the previous uh, pay per view for the championship. It was logical to have RVD and Flair face each other, and the match wasn't good. Um, you know, Rick was in the twilight of his career. You know, at this point. Oh wait, so, so it's it is a demotion or it's not a demotion? You're saying it wasn't good and it's twilight. No, I'm what not saying, saying it was a demotion. I'm saying it's a high profile match to be in the ring with Ric Flair. Oh, I'm saying at this time it wasn't the same Ric Flair of the 1980s. That's what I said, and you said no. No, you said it was a demotion that now he had fallen all the way down the card to have to wrestle Ric Flair. Well, um, you just said it was. I'm saying Ric it was Flair. a big deal to wrestle Ric Flair, but I'm also saying Ric Flair wasn't the same Ric Flair at this point in his career. So he's good enough to beat Ric Flair, but not good enough to beat Triple H? Well, obviously he didn't, but he did. Actually, no, you actually had in there where he did beat uh, Triple H. Yeah, before. but I mean, not- you, got, you gloss over those. and everything. Oh, no, no, that was a bullshit. And I'm sorry. How, okay, so to you, it's more important to win matches. How many matches did Rick win when he was the champion? None. But what I'm saying there is you go. he was the champion, and you guys would not allow Rob Van Dam to be the champion. Because Triple H didn't want it. But we did. Yeah, eventually, but not here because Triple H didn't want it. No, that's not true because Vince McMahon didn't want it. Because Triple H got in his ear. No, because Vince didn't want it. Okay, nobody has Vince's ear. Got it. So the next night on Raw, RVD and Kane team up for the first time. I am the only one. Rick and Triple H. After that, Rob's working house shows with Rico. Damn right. On November 11th, Rob and You get Kane a bad mouth, Rico, now? No, I just said Rico. Okay. Rob and Kane uh, beat the tag champs, Jericho and Christian, by DQ, and that gets us to November 17th, the Elimination Chamber. We've covered this, of course. We've got Triple H defending his title against RVD, Shawn Michaels, Kane, Jericho, and Booker T. Uh, hell of a match here. We've covered it in our archives. Briefly... What do you want to tell us about this one? Well, you know, this was the first Elimination Chamber match, so it was the first time guys were working in it. It was snug as hell, hurt like hell. Every time you hit it, no matter where you hit it, everything in it hurt. Uh, but there was a spot in the match where RVD came off the top, and the pod was so damn high, Rob didn't have any room to jump up. He had to jump out. And when he did, his knee came down across Triple H's throat and crushed Triple H's trachea. Uh, pretty serious injury, and that happened in the match, but it was an accident, and everybody looked at it as an accident. It was just an unfortunate thing that happened. But uh, I don't you know. I remember Rob getting up 
on top of the uh, pod earlier in the day and just thinking, God damn, I, I've got to go out and I can't go up, which he did know, but, you know, he also thought he could do it. And uh, I don't know he's completely comfortable with it, but he did it, and it didn't work out too well. So the next night on Raw, Rob wins a triple threat match against Jericho and Booker T to become the number one contender for the world title and wrestle Shawn Michaels. So on the November 25th Raw, Rob beat Shawn Michaels by the hue after Triple H interfered. Earlier in the show, a segment was done where Shawn and RVD slapped each other very hard. And all day behind the scenes, Jericho was trying to bring emotion out of Rob because he didn't feel like he was as excited as he should be to be working with Shawn Michaels to the point that even Stephanie comes over to him and says, I don't know if this is a dream match or if you get excited about things like that and sort of wanted to feel, you know, feel him out. How was he feeling about it? And Rob felt like he'd been here a long time, busting his ass, having great matches consistently with everyone. And if this guy comes back after four years and the match isn't great, it's going to be all my fault. Is that fair to say? No, I don't think it's fair to say, but I think it's fair to say that Rob was feeling that way. And I think that the way that it was positioned to him by a lot of people like Stephanie and other people coming up to him and go, oh, this is a big deal. You know, working with Shawn Michaels now and Shawn's back and this is a big, huge deal. Um, I could see where he felt that way. Absolutely. I guess it's worth mentioning here that um, the very next time we see them wrestle we don't i mean this is a dream match i mean going back to 96 97 98 a lot of people in 97 especially like in those pro wrestling illustrator type magazines the after mags if you will they would freestyle that the real dream match for super fans was rob van dam and Shawn michaels and i was for that i agreed i really wanted to see that it felt like you know the best wrestler now with what could be the best wrestler next the next big thing but they never really had an extended program. Why do you think that is? Well, why wasn't there more magic and more money in Sean and Rob Van Dam? I just I think timing, and I also think it had to do with t- Sean's uh, limited schedule. Sean wasn't coming back full time, so we didn't have that luxury of being able to book Sean all the time on TVs and on house shows and different things. So this period, Sean was looked at. Strictly as an attraction, also a short, very short term. Uh, the decision to put the championship on him was kind of a last minute decision, and no one was looking for Sean to be around more than a couple of months. December 2nd, we see a number one contender match on Raw. This is for Sean's world title, and Sean's actually the ref here. Triple H beats Rob Van Dam. Rumor yeah, in, then what happened? Rumor and innuendo is around this time. Whenever they saw each other in catering, catering, Triple H would demand that he gave Rob a pedigree. Can you confirm? Yeah, that happened all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. After this, they're working house shows. You know what happens. Uh, Rob beat Triple H every night. Yeah, by DQ. Yeah, still beat him. Silly nonsense. So early January of 03. You're uh, silly nonsense. Rob starts the team with Scott Steiner to beat Triple H and Batista on house shows. Wait, and, wait, they beat Triple H? Yeah, well, Scott Steiner did. He beat Batista. Uh-huh. I mean, Triple uh-huh. H ain't laying down unless it's a house show. And he can you said sick. that he wouldn't lay down for Scott Steiner before. Well, he didn't. Well, you just said Scott Steiner beat him every night. No, Batista. He beat Batista. 
And it says Triple H. Okay. Can we keep going here? Yeah, go ahead. Rob is from Michigan, and old Ham Cubes is from Michigan, so they hit it off. This is a time when we didn't hear that Scott really hit it off with many people. Um, what was it about these two? Just the Michigan background, or why did these two guys get along so well? I think it was just the Michigan background and finding common ground in that. Royal Rumble 03, uh, Rob's in the Rumble match. As soon as he steps through, Triple H pedigrees. <laughs> just kidding, that didn't happen. He comes in at number 12, he eliminates Jeff Hardy, and he's eliminated by Kane. Um, he didn't really have a, a, a lot of run here in any of these Rumble matches. He's sort of in and out pretty quickly. Was that because he didn't really enjoy forearms to the face, or what was the thinking? Mm, no reason, just the way that the cards felt. And sometimes when you're laying out a match, you don't have spots for everybody, and you try and get people in and out, and it just fits that way. It's like a puzzle. The next night, we're back to the same old puzzle. Rob beats Jeff Hardy, which it feels like we've said a thousand times on this show, and he's working house shows against Jericho and Christian, and he even has a couple with D'Lo Brown. He beat Kane by DQ on the February 3rd Raw, and then they start to team up on house shows after that, and they become a bit of a regular team. And Rob, at the time, didn't think it made much sense to him while they were put together, but he really enjoyed Glenn personally, and they seemed to get along well. What was the thinking in trying to putting them to put them together? Opposites attract. And when looking at, you know, we were looking for something for both guys to do. You have Kane, the big red machine and a monster. And then you got Rob Van Dam, laid back, cool guy. Um, no one in a million years would really think, Hey, wouldn't they be a great team? And then we thought, damn, that would make a pretty damn good team. And it was just the, the yin and the yang of it. And pretty much what RVD is all about, I think that when they met in the middle, they made an awesome team. I feel like it's worth mentioning here that they're working a lot with three-minute warning, and we haven't really talked a lot about three-minute warning. Any good three-minute warning stories you can share with us? Whew. <laughs> Probably none that, that we can tell on the show. No, you know, we, lo- we lost Rosie not long ago, and he was probably one of the – you know how you – have the the gentle giants that when you get to know them are like the nicest guy in the world. That's the way Rosie was. Now, Jamal on the other side uh, was same, but it, it was, they were just both so nice, but portrayed the biggest, meanest, nastiest bastards on the face of the earth. And um, they were just a lot of fun, man, but yeah. We had a lot of fun back in the day uh, out in the bars and whatnot. On March 24th, RVD and Kane beat the Dudleys in a number one contender match for the tag titles. And the following week, on the 31st, RVD and Kane actually win the titles, uh, taking on the Dudleys and Morley and Storm. And the stipulation of the match is, if RVD and Kane lost, they have to join Bischoff's stable. RVD would pin Morley after the five-star frog splash. And then they start defending their titles, mostly against the Dudleys on the house shows. Uh, at Backlash, Chief Morley was the ref when RVD and Kane beat the Dudleys to retain the titles. And Kane hit Bubba with a choke slam, and then RVD followed with a five-star for the pin. RVD preferred Devon, said Devon was the nicer of the Dudleys. That seems like a common thing we hear in wrestling. <laughs> I was just going to say everybody preferred Devon. He was the nicer Dudley. He is the nicer Dudley. I still love Bubba, but still, Devon's definitely the nicer Dudley. 
The next night on Raw, RVD and Kane beat Flair and Triple H to retain the titles. When Nash came out and chased Triple H away, that allowed Kane to hit Flair with the choke slam and then the five-star splash for the pin. Here's a fun little match that a lot of people forget about. On May 12th... Wait a minute, RVD and them beat Triple H? And, no, they okay. beat Ric Flair. Right, when and then the, Triple H. No, when the pin happened, the tag team. Triple H was in the back. Triple H coffee was on the Kevin team. Nash. It was his team. He didn't lay down. Um, May 12th. RVD beat the Legion of Doom to retain the titles. That's kind of fun because the LOD is a surprise opponent here. And uh, Kane chokeslams him, and uh, Hawk rather. And then, of course, the five-star comes down from Rob. What leads to the Road Warriors coming back for this night here? A, a special night and kind of a nostalgia night and see what we had there. And unfortunately, it, it wasn't wasn't a whole lot at that point in their career. Judgment Day 2003 goes down on May 18th, and RVD's in the Battle Royal Crown, a new Intercontinental Champion. Uh, Christian gets the nod. RVD and Kane start working with La Resistance on the house shows, and that leads to a Bad Blood pay-per-view where La Resistance actually win the tag team titles. During the match, RVD accidentally lands on Kane, which allowed them to get the pin. Uh, I'd like to make some jokes here, but I'll let you take it from here. Well, no, it was, uh, you know, Vince had this thing about La Resistance and the French-Canadian connection there. Two young guys, you know, the money was, in my opinion, in Rene Dupree, and I think that uh, he had a big upside, but I think that he came in way too damn young and naive, but I think that Rene probably had a had a big upside that we never, ever got to see. RVD starts working house show matches for the world title against Triple H. You know what happens. Triple H beats the fuck out of him every time. On June 23rd, That's not true. Triple H beat... Oh, Rob Van Dam won the world title there? No, he didn't beat the fuck out of him, though. Triple they had H- good matches, and they're working together on top. Triple H beat Kane, and the stipulation here on June 23rd is if Kane loses, he has to unmask. So after the match, Triple H attacks Kane from behind. RVD comes out. And Kane ends up unmasking and then choke slamming RVD, which essentially breaks up their team and turns them heel. I know we're going to talk about this in the Kane episode, but since RVD was here, let's switch gears for a minute. Why was the decision made to finally have Kane unmask? And what can you tell us about his look that night with what you did with his eyes and his hair? Well, the idea was to get to a Kane and an RVD storyline. The Vince wanted to get the mask off of Kane, felt that we had done all that we could with the masked red, big red machine underneath the mask and, and wanted to take the mask off of him. The idea behind what Kane was going to look like was mine. And I asked Glenn to, to shave his head in inches portions. And I, I go back to the, to the Mick Foley when Mick Foley originally came in as Mankind and had parts of his head shaved where it looked like he was picking his hair, because if you look, and, and again, it goes back to Mike Tyson, too. You see the, the part in Mike Tyson's hair, that's from him picking the hair out of his head. And I, that was what we tried to do with Mankind. And here with Kane, I wanted, like, portions of his of his hair to be gone, like it just fell out. And he was wearing this wig and the mask to cover up the deformity and all the the makeup was makeup that he wore every night. He always had the black under his eyes just to kind of hide his face, as it were. But 
it looked good for that night and Glenn, you know, having to live with it and I understood it, wasn't comfortable with it beyond that. And we decided to, uh, shave his head just to appease him. On the June 30th Raw, they have a no DQ world title match where RVD gets to challenge Triple H again. Well, you guess what happens? Triple H fucking beat him. Uh, then RVD after is, Flair hits him with the belt. Yeah, still okay, cool. Yeah, uh, in the end, uh, Rob Van Dam lost. Triple H won. Latin last verse, same as the first. Uh, so, so you're upset that RVD's in a top? No, in a top program. I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's great. I like it. RVD's working house top money being in a top program with top guy. Yeah, it's great for everybody. It's great for everybody. It really is. Uh, RVD starts working house shows with Test after this, and he actually has a couple of matches where he teams with Kevin Nash just so Triple H can beat him again. Um, on July 21st, RVD takes on Kane. They go to a no contest, and Kane comes to the ring in shackles, and RVD runs to the ring and kicks Kane outside for a big dive before the bell. And, uh, man, this thing is wild. Even Linda McMahon comes out to try to stop it, and Kane grabs her by the throat. Lawler runs over to make the save, and Kane knocks him and everyone else down. And then Kane tombstone Linda on the stage. How great is this? Well, and no, the the best part about that entire scenario was as many times as we had gone over it during the day, and... We had a specific cut and specific way to shoot that. And Vince being absolutely irate at Gorilla because they screwed up the shot. And God damn it! Fuck you! Fuck you, Kerwin! God damn it, Kerwin! Fuck you, Kerwin! And everybody's sitting there, but we're concerned about Linda. We're concerned, okay, is Linda okay? And we knew Kane had her, but Vince's outburst over the way that was shot was absolutely monumental. Raw on August 18th in Grand Rapids is worth mentioning, man. Christian and RVD go to a no contest because RVD hits the five star and then Kane comes down. So RVD dives through the ropes at him, but Kane hits him with a chair and knocks him out and then carries him to the back, handcuffs him, pours gasoline on him and then lit a match threatening to set RVD on fire. And Kane says he's not going to do it because that's what they want him to do. From now on, he does what he wants to do, and he just walks away, leaving RVD handcuffed with a towel in his mouth, covered in gasoline. And Rob says that you were directing this, and you wanted him to scream when Kane was pouring the gasoline on him like he was scared for his life. But when you guys are shooting it, you would say cut because you wanted Rob to act like he was going to die. And allegedly, you came over to Rob and said, Rob, you're acting? Well, it's the shits. What do you remember of this? It was the shits. The whole scenario was the shits. Um, we're trying to make the best out of it. And when I'm walking through it and we're going through the whole thing and Rob's handcuffed to this pipe hanging there, it just, it, it just felt eh. And then Kane came in and, and he had the, he had the lighter and put it up to Rob's mouth. And that's where Rob just kind of blows. He, we're running through it and he's got the fire in front of his face and Rob just goes and blows, blows the fire out. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't work. So to appease it all, that's why we put the towel, the, the 
stuff in his mouth so that he couldn't blow it out. And also he didn't have to yell and scream. And then we had him beat down so that he really couldn't fight doing it and just had Kane kind of cutting the promo to a limp dead body of, of RVD there. And I think that it worked out in the end, but it was hilarious building up to it and just trying to get through. You know, they envision one thing when they write it. And then you get there and you try and, and shoot it and present it and it just doesn't work sometimes. So we made, we made do with what we had. August 24th in 03 in Phoenix. This is SummerSlam and it's no holds barred and Kane is going to beat RVD with a tombstone on the ringside stairs for the win. Two and a quarter stars. What do you remember about this SummerSlam match? Well, I, I want to say this was their first big match on pay-per-view, and I thought it was pretty damn good. Again, you know, RVD getting out there, and it was another example where people were going, okay, I thought it was a good showing on everybody's part. Let's fast forward to uh, Unforgiven, September 21st. We see a triple threat. Christian beats RVD and Jericho. Christian blocks a five-star splash with a chair and then scores the pin. Three stars. What do you remember about this one, if anything? You know what? I really don't remember a whole lot about that one. So next, I don't know. They did a ladder match a couple of weeks later on September 29th, and uh, it's an Intercontinental title here, and we're going to see RVD actually beat Christian to win the Intercontinental title. And Rob's always put Christian over, saying he's very creative, and by the time they ever they ever sat down and talk about a match, Christian had already visualized a lot of the match, and and was easy to sort of put stuff together with. Is Christian one of the the more unsung heroes of just putting matches together? I used to say about Christian that he was the best damn pure worker in the business, and um, he could work with anybody and, and make it look damn good. So he he is one of one of the big unsung heroes in the business. Doesn't get enough credit. Um, he starts working house shows, he being RVD pronouns, pal. Uh, and he's working these pronouns, pal matches with Randy Orton on house shows. And allegedly Randy got some heat because he did a corner post during one of the matches and he got knocked out and Rob was able to sort of carry him through the rest of the match. But allegedly Rob got on MySpace, not Rob, Randy got on MySpace and thanked Rob for taking care of him and allegedly got a little bit of heat for breaking kayfabe. Can you tell us about the sort of the early infancy days of social media where guys would sort of maybe share a little too much? Yeah, I, th I think especially with the younger talent, they, they didn't know. Um and for us older guys that didn't really understand social media to the extent that we do now, like I really understand it, but times were changing. And the fact that you could immediately correspond and go back and forth with people on this damn thing called the internet, well, it was, it was still new for us and it was in its infancy. So. For somebody to do that, they didn't really understand it. We didn't know how to use it to our advantage. And so, yeah, I can see people going in and, hey, Randy, oh, what'd you say on that, uh, on that MyGram or InstaSpace face page? So they just didn't understand it. 
October 27th, they're in North Carolina, and Jericho beat RVD for the IC title. And Jericho had RVD in the walls of Jericho, but Bischoff ran down and distracted the ref when RVD reached the ropes. So Jericho pulls him back to the center, and RVD taps out. But Austin, who's the co-GM, comes out and restarts the match, and then RVD wins and regains the title. I bring this up because this is actually the second time in his career that he's lost the title and then won it back a few minutes later on Raw. He did it in 01 and now again here. You don't see that very often, but it's sort of fun to think about in hindsight. Well, that was you know that was my idea. I said, hey, what if RBD's gimmick becomes he wins titles back like the same night? No, not buying it. Well, it, I mean, I know Triple H didn't come up with the idea, so I'll give you credit for it. Okay. Let's go to Survivor Series 03. I got Taka. Which is still one of the best lines from the show. <laughs> Team Austin, RVD, Booker T, Shawn Michaels, and the Dudleys are taking on Team Bischoff, Randy Orton, Chris Jericho, Christian, Scott Steiner, and Mark Henry. Uh, RVD eliminates Henry and then is eliminated himself by Orton. And Orton is the eventual winner of the match. And because of the stipulations, Austin lost his co-GM job on Raw. The next night, RVD gets a win over Flair by DQ. Let's fast forward a little bit. He worked on Raw with Goldberg and Shawn Michaels against Kane, Orton, and Batista. And Rob says he always thought that Goldberg was way cool, cooler than he was expecting. And he'd heard a lot of shit talk about him. But once he actually got to meet him, he thought it was pretty cool. And Goldberg was very kind to him and said that he'd heard a lot about him and he was a big fan was Rob sort of in the minority with this opinion of Goldberg here at the time? Well, again, I think that Bill had one one kind of persona, and Bill in the wrestling genre and the wrestling environment did give off a negative vibe. I know people, really, really good friends of mine that know Bill and are friends with Bill uh, in the race car world and in, in the car business that talk about Bill being the, the sweetest guy and the greatest guy that they've ever met. So, you know, when you take Bill Goldberg, the human being, you take him out of where he was at that time in the business, I'm sure he, he was a great guy. You know, the, the experience while he was there, he was miserable. He even said that at the Hall of Fame. He was miserable while he was there during the first run and didn't really know how to react. And we all didn't know how to react, and probably it was negative. But I think given the chance, um, I'm sure Bill's a great guy. Uh, let's talk about it. Armageddon, December 14th. Mick Foley's the ref, and Orton beats Rob to win the Intercontinental title. Orton's still very young in his career, and he's the IC champ now in a match that gets two and three-quarter stars. What What was the hope? Randy Orton here in late 03. Man, uh, Randy Orton, I used to refer to him as the future. I, I just saw Randy Orton. He was an absolute natural in the ring from day one in Ohio Valley. The first time I saw Randy, it was like, damn, the kid had it. He had a swagger when he walked into the room. He carried when he, you can tell when a guy gets in the ring, man, what they have and if they belong there or not. Randy Orton owned the ring. He was he was the future. And at this point in time, we were looking at him a lot of ways in how we looked at uh, Dewey Johnson back in the day as, man, that guy's going to be the future. 
Let's talk about it. December is over, and we're into January. January 5th, there's a number one contender match for the Intercontinental title. RVD earns the honor, beating Mark Henry in the process. And then the very next week, Orton beats him. Let's get to the Royal Rumble. RVD comes in at number 29. Uh, as soon as he comes in, Triple H pedigrees him. Through. No, he didn't. He didn't eliminate anybody. He's eliminated by the big show. Um, again, I don't know why this is fun to me, but I guess he just felt like Shorter's better, and he's always right out of there. Um, February, Shorter is better. I, no doubt. You get paid the same. Fuck it. Let's go. He starts teaming with Booker T on February 16th, and allegedly these guys were already riding together and got along really well. Any fun Booker T, Rob Van Dam stories you can share? <laughs> No, not off the top of my head, but the reason that Booker T and Rob Van Dam became a team was because they were friends out of the ring. They had good chemistry. They always hung out together. And I want to say, I think it was Book who actually suggested it, that they teamed together because, well, they were a team. So when two guys get along outside of the ring, usually have good chemistry inside the ring, and that's why we did the tag team with Book and RVD. WrestleMania 20 goes down in March of 04, and Booker T would team with Rob Van Dam to beat La Resistance and Garrison Cade and Mark Jindrak and the Dudleys, and they retained the tag titles in the process here. Uh, and the problem with these four team matches is sometimes they're just big fucking schmozzes. Uh, I guess we should mention Booker T and RVD, when they debuted as a tag, they won the titles right away, uh, beating Flair and Batista in the process. Keller would say this WrestleMania match, though, with all four teams, is just okay. Gives it a star in three quarters. It is sort of hard to put four tag teams in there like this, is it not? It was fucking awful. <laughs> it was fucking awful. Um, man, you, you had two green teams, La Resistance and Kane and Jindrak, um, in there with four pros. It just was a hodgepodge that didn't work, and it... Okay, it sucked. Sorry. But we did it to get everybody, you know, get more guys on the card and give them a WrestleMania exposure, but it sucked. Sorry. I guess we should mention right here that a week later, Flair and Batista beat RVD and Booker T to win the tag titles. Um, and they do a bit of a, a split, an accidental, inadvertent super kick from RVD to Booker T um, that same night. Rob is then drafted to SmackDown. So the old Mr. Monday Night is now on SmackDown. RVD would sort of freestyle that he felt like this is because of who was writing SmackDown at the time and who his friends were at the time. Why do you think that Rob Van Dam wound up at SmackDown here and, and they broke apart the uh, the team here of Booker T? Or seemingly that was the plan. Uh, to change things up a little bit, and that was the only reason. Rob had been on Raw for a while and wanted to change things up, and I believe Paul Paul was on SmackDown, and Paul did want Rob and felt that he could right. I can do better for Rob than you guys are because I know better, but um, it was to just change things up. New faces. It's sort of fun, though, that Rob still owns Mr. Monday Night, but when he comes to uh, SmackDown, WWE starts having him call himself Mr. Thursday Night, and they own that name, which I think is fun. <laughs> That's uh, great. Booker T's drafted to SmackDown, and they start a feud when Booker walked out on him uh, during a tag match, and they have matches on April 13th and April 20th, and then he starts the team with Rey Mysterio. 
And I, I don't know why, but I've always found it fun to just go back and look at who some of his tag team partners were through the years. You know, Jerry Lawler, Ray Mysterio, Booker T, Kane. He's got some high profile tag opponents here. Um, their match is, uh, is always good on the house shows. It's getting really great reviews, especially when they're working the Dudleys. And then they're back in singles action come June 27th at the Great American Bash. He's in a fatal four-way elimination match for the U.S. title, this time with Booker T, Renee Dupree, and the champion, John Cena. Let me run through that list again. We've got Rob Van Dam, John Cena, Booker T, and Renee Dupree. You know, I learned this game as a kid. Which one of these is not like the other? I don't know why you got to be like that. Um, star and three quarters, according to Wade Keller. Of course, John Cena is victorious, but Keller would write here. Cena is still missing something. Uh, what did you think of the match? <laughs> you know, the match itself wasn't great. Um, I don't know what Cena was missing. You know, he had the charisma and he had it. So it was just, it was the beginning of the build for John, but the match. Okay. Match kind of stunk. July 6th on SmackDown, Rob beat Mark Jindrak. Bruce, what's your favorite Mark Jindrak match? His last one. <laughs> Listen to you. Uh, Sunday Night Heat on August 15th. This is the Sunday Night Heat right before SummerSlam. So, of course, Rob's on that and not SummerSlam. And he beats Renee Dupree. What's the thinking here? You got one of your most over guys, and he's not even on SummerSlam. Uh, well, I guess you'd have to ask his, his writer that was writing for him at the time, Paul Heyman. Um, not everybody could be on SummerSlam and somebody's got to, you know, be on heat and he could have not been on, on the card at all. No mercy is October 3rd and the world tag team titles are on the line when Kenzo Suzuki is teaming with Rene Dupree to beat Rob Van Dam and Ray Mysterio. I want to say that again. Kenzo Suzuki and Rene Dupree beat Rob Van Dam and Ray Mysterio in nine minutes. Um, a star and a quarter. Who booked this shit, Bruce? Woo. I did. Um, Vince was in love with Kenzo Suzuki. Big guy. Asian. <laughs> Big guy. Uh, his wife was nice looking. Asian. <laughs> um, uh, did I mention he was big and Asian and Asian? Uh, that damn bell had to ring though. And we tried, man, we tried. Th this was an example of taking two people with a lot of potential, potentially hear that Kenzo and Renee and put them in with two workers in RVD and Ray to help get them over. But man, uh, Kenzo was bad. Kenzo was bad. And we, we kept trying to, you know, get him over, try to put him in a position where people would care. And no one gave a shit. He just, it wasn't there. It just wasn't there, but we tried like hell. And, as Paul Heyman would say, some must die so others can live. And there we go. 
Survivor Series 04, John Cena, Andy Guerrero, Rob Van Dam, and Big Show beat Angle, Luther Reigns, Mark Jindrak, and Carlito Cool. Uh, Cena does almost nothing in the match, but um, Angle is pinned by Show after a Cena FU, and then the Guerrero Frog Splash. And uh, there's your win. Three quarters of a star. Sort of an interesting deal, but a fairly forgettable pay-per-view. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And, and again, you know, it's a rebuilding time where we were trying to bring new young guys up and stick them in the mix and, and trying to build, you know, just trying to get guys in the mix, new people. I guess that was a good time to, uh, bring some entertainment to the podcast because I feel like we're just beating up on old poor Rob here and his experience, but there's a pretty famous story where you guys were going to do the tribute to the troops. And it said, since it is a war zone, that it's voluntary and you don't huh. have to go. So Rob decides, cool, I'm not going. I'm taking my 10 days off. Allegedly, he's burnt out, wants the time off, wants to recharge his batteries, and really has no interest in flying to a war zone. And then right before the time off was ready to hit, and he's finally here at vacation, Johnny Ace has a meeting and tells everyone about the trip. And said it's voluntary, but everyone's expected to go. And then Rob told John he wasn't going. So John told him to talk to the guys because some of them have a great time when they go. And it ends up leading to a talk with Vince. And Rob tells him he was looking forward to the time off and he wasn't going to go. And Vince said, well, Rob, I appreciate that. And Rob said, okay, cool. And Vince said, I think you'll enjoy the trip. And Rob says, I just told you I'm not going. And Vince said, don't be so hasty. I think you should talk to the guys. Some of them love going. And Rob said after the meeting, literally everyone came up to him and said things like, I wish I could say no like you. And he says, what do you mean? You can say no. You have the right to anything. You can say no. And um, he kept saying no. And the office is not accepting that he doesn't want to go. And it leads to a point to where Rob decides to talk to Vince right after the show's ended and he remembers waiting for Vince is getting angrier and angrier. And he's decided that he's willing to accept any consequences. If Vince wants to fire him, suspend him, whatever, he's ready to accept it. But he's, ex he's upset that Vince feels like he has so much power over him to the point that he can make him go. Even if he says he doesn't want to go. And he even considers allegedly, asking Vince if he wants to play pick a hand and at least in his mind is mentally preparing what would happen if I slapped the shit out of Vince, but man, certainly I would be fired. And eventually the location is moved to a less secure location. So the voluntary became very voluntary. And during another meeting with John addressing this location change, he says in front of everyone, Rob, I know you're not going. Tell me about this tributes to the troops thing, which really grew to be one of the more legendary backstage things with Rob Van Dam. Well, pretty much it happened exactly kind of like how you just said it happened. And Rob didn't want to go. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was adamant. He didn't want to go. To me, the funniest part was it's voluntary. Oh, guys, this is totally voluntary. However, uh, you are expected to go. And uh you'll be getting your tickets to show up, and we're going to take a big aircraft carrier over there. 
Um, but it was, you know, Vince is very patriotic and Vince feels like, you know, you should give back to your country and felt that it was a pretty cool thing. The tribute to the troops was a cool thing that a lot of people loved. Not everybody wanted to, to do it and not everybody wanted to go over and take that trip, which was on a, you know, it's on a carrier plane where the seats don't really recline and, and you, you're on there with all the equipment. Not, not comfortable at all. And when you get there, you're sleeping on cots and, um, it's not a luxurious trip. However, you're giving back to your country and you're, you're doing a really good thing. I volunteered for every trip and never got to go. So I was pissed off at that on the other side. So I was the opposite of Rob. I wanted to go and I was pissed off that they wouldn't let me go. And then we got to the point where it, it went to, uh, went to a base where it wasn't going to be the, the big show the way that we had traditionally done it. And they decided, okay, we don't need to bring everybody and, so if you don't want to go, you don't have to. I know you're not, Rob. But yeah, that pretty much happened that way. It's amazing. Um, there was another meeting around this time where something was said about not being able to work out during the day before TV. And Rob says, is it okay if we work out in the morning before we come in? And it was something that was to make everyone laugh. And Johnny kicked him out of the meeting. And when Rob was walking in the hall, <laughs> he saw you and told you that he just got kicked out of the meeting. Why did Johnny Ace have a problem with guys going to work out when they had to be there at one o'clock anyway? And the show's not till eight. What's the big deal if they go work out? There, there is no big deal. And that's not what he said. Johnny was telling guys that you couldn't leave during the day to go work out. And Rob then made the, the you know, guys, you know, TV days, you can't be going off and going off to work out. And then Rob made the smart ass comment of, you know, is it okay if we work out before we get to TV? And Johnny was having a bad day. Um, probably coming right out of a, an ass chewing from Vince and kicked him out of the meeting. I remember <laughs> coming out because seeing some talent in the hall, I knew everybody was supposed to be in a meeting. So I was like, Rob, what the hell are you doing? Oh, Johnny kicked me out of me. I was like, what did you do? And he told me, I thought it was funny. I thought it was an attempt at levity. I thought it was funny. I would have laughed at it and uh, just moved on. But I think Johnny was kind of having a bad day. And, oh, you could just leave. On so, December 28th, Rob and Ray beat Eddie and Booker to retain the tag titles. And during the match, RVD and Ray did a move where Rob would pick Ray up in an atomic drop position and then they both drop a leg. So all four of their legs do the leg drop, and they called it the 420 leg drop. <laughs> and on commentary, Cole explained the 420 leg drop is four legs and their combined shoe sizes. Rob is a 12, Ray is an 8, so 20. And Rob said that Paul came to him and said, Vince wants to know, is that a drug reference? And Rob said, no. There's four legs and our combined shoe size. He wears an eight and I wear a 12. So Paul went back and told Vince that he okayed it. And that's the line they fed Cole. How fucking great is this? Makes sense to me. I love it. Kind of like today's 420, isn't it? Similar. <laughs> Go ahead. January of 05, Rob hurts his knee here when he's teaming with Ray and they're wrestling the Basham brothers. 
Uh, they go up for a backdrop, and um, something happened when he landed. He could feel his ACL snap, and it had, it had been bothering him since 2001, but it was just getting thinner and thinner, and it finally snapped. And he said when it happened, he couldn't straighten his leg all the way out, and he couldn't bend on it. It was in a locked position. So he thought he had to get the surgery and just go right for it. So, of course, he's got to lose the tag titles, and they do that in a fatal four-way match where the Basham brothers win the titles. And he's out for the entire year of 05, but he says that was his favorite year of their career because he got paid for a whole year to sit at home. He was uh, completely burnt out, and there was just no fun left in this. So I guess in a weird way, this January 27th surgery he has for his ACL and meniscus with Dr. James Andrews is really a much-needed break. How obvious was it to you that Rob was burned out at this time? I think it was obvious to everybody because, you know, he was unhappy and it was just his fried. You know, Rob, Rob liked his time. Rob liked his time to himself and, and he liked to be away from the business. Rob wasn't all about, you know, being on the road and, and rah, rah, the business 24 seven. The business was an end, you know, means to an end or, it wasn't his life. Didn't consume him. Something that I've always been fascinated by is the way these contracts are written, and I don't think a lot of people realize this. Since Rob can't wrestle, he decided to start making some appearances, and he starts to do the appearances, thinking he's going to pick up some extra money, but then he finds out that the company actually counts that against your downside guarantee. So you can go do these appearances and make the same amount of money, or you can go sit at home and make the same amount of money. So he just stopped doing it. Chat me up about that. Well, no, it's 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 very clear on the contract that any monies that are made go against your downside guarantee. So if there's something that's booked through the company or you're out earning money, that goes against your downside guarantee because you're under contract. It's pretty clear in there. I, I'm not arguing that, but the result is rather than have guys go out and do something, they just sit at home and do nothing. Well, some guys did. Some guys didn't. You know, some guys want to go out and do it. But it was different for everybody. But that that was definitely something that they did often. And if guys couldn't work and they were able to go out and do something like, a, for example, go do trade shows and things like that, they would use guys that would be injured to go do that because they were still getting paid. Allegedly, uh, a lot of, of folks... Uh, sort of take credit for ECW One Night Stand. But supposedly Rob is the guy who first put the bug in Vince's ear about, you've got all these ECW wrestlers on your roster. Why don't you do an ECW pay-per-view? And uh, supposedly Paul Heyman gets wind of this and starts pushing for it, and that's how One Night Stand came together. But it all happened just accidentally, maybe, when Rob Van Dam casually mentions it to Vince McMahon. Is that the way you remember it is the way I remembered. I remember Rob saying something, but we'd also done a, a DVD on ECW and it did very well. And the timing of it all worked out really well as for Van Dam, you know, he did have this conversation with Vince and said, Hey, you know, what if? And that's a good way to start conversations. RVD, of course, makes a surprise appearance at that show and cuts a tremendous promo. I mean, he gets emotional during it. Um, it was a big deal for him to be there, but I'm sure he would have loved to have had um, a bigger part in this, but the injury just wouldn't allow it. Um, 
But that promo also let everybody know, God, you let him be him, and the some bitch is going to deliver. Don't don't try to put words in his mouth. He says that no one knew what he was going to say that night, and he ran it by Edge before he went out there, and Edge was really the only one. Does that seem right, that he would be allowed to go out there and cut a promo and not really run it past anybody? Yeah, the guys were told to speak from the heart. I don't know, Rob was told that. I wasn't there, but I was told that, yes. Um, it was pretty cool because that night he was back with Fonzie, and you had Sabu, Fonzie, and Rob Van Dam all together again. Was there ever any consideration to putting them together like that? Not really, and I I don't know that it was really ever suggested, frankly. I, I think Fonzie was either out of the business or doing something else at the time, but I don't ever remember it being brought up for the two of them to be a team coming in at the time. So um, back to wasn't even suggested. I don't know that anybody ever really thought of it. I never really understood this. On the January, I'm sorry, June 27th Raw, the Intercontinental Champion Carlito is hosting the first episode of Carlito's Cabana, and he announces that his first guest was the final draft pick to come to Raw. And RVD's music hits, he comes out to a huge pop, but he's got a knee brace on, and he's wearing an ECW shirt. Chat me up here. If he's still injured, he's still six months out, why is he here doing this promo? Buzz. Totally unpredictable and, and people thinking, oh, hey, Rob's back, but just just for buzz and for a way to get Carlito over. Uh, Rob allegedly asked for some more time off after this, and Paul tells him that Dr. Rios was concerned that Rob might be milking the injury. Do you remember hearing that, that maybe there were some rumors that he was really trying to milk it, or is this Paul stirring it up? You know, I never heard that, and but I'll say this, too, about guys – I remember, and I'll use Mark Merrow as an example. Mark Merrow going in and he had the same injury and Mark overtrained and came back way too soon and ended up being out even longer than if he had just done his rehab the way he was supposed to do it and come back in a reasonable time. So I don't think anybody was going to Rob saying, Hey, come back because we had already experienced guys who rushed their rehab to come back too soon and ended up being out a lot longer than if they had originally just taken their time. So that one's news to me. I don't remember ever hearing that during that time, and we want a Rob to come back healthy and 100%. Let's talk about uh, money in the bank, because that's what we're really headed towards. Uh, he's working um, with Carlito on February 6th on Raw in the Road to WrestleMania tournament. He beats Carlito. The next week, he beats Chris Masters. Uh, there's a tournament final uh, on Mar- on February 20th, and it's got uh, RVD, of course, Big Show, and Triple H. You, you already know who won that. And then on February 27th, there's a qualifying match. RVD gets a win over Trevor Murdoch. And then on March 20th, there's a three-way, and Benjamin beats RVD and Flair to retain. And that all brings us to April 2nd, WrestleMania. And Rob Van Dam beats Ric Flair, Shelton Benjamin, Bobby Lashley, Fit Finley, and Matt Hardy in a Money in the Bank match. Uh, pretty big moment here. Uh, I think the highlight, at least for me, is Shelton running the ladder 
what do you remember about this five-star frog splash finish to Money in the Bank? It got three and a quarter stars. Huge landmark match for Rob Van Dam here. It was, and I, you know, the part that I remember most about this whole match was the debate on the finish. Who's going to win Money in the Bank, and what are we going to do with it? There was a big push for Shelton to win, and let this be Shelton's moment to, you know, step out of the box and put the shine on Shelton. Bobby Lashley was a logical look. Just, man, look at him. Bobby Lashley should get it. What if Ric Flair... You know, out of nowhere, nobody expects it. And Ric Flair's walking around with an opportunity, one more shot to be the WWE champion. Um, this could be Rob Van Dam's time. Who would ever expect Matt Hardy to win the son of a bitch? What if? So everybody in the match, there were people fighting for him. And, and the scenarios kept rolling over and over and over again to finally Vince just saying, RVD it is. Nobody's going to call it. And that was it. But it was it was a debate up until that weekend as to who was going to win Money in the Bank. Let me encourage everybody to go watch this. It's a fun match. It's only 12 minutes. WrestleMania 22. It's from April 2nd, 2006. We're going to cover it in long form sometime. But go watch this Money in the Bank match. It's something to see, man. Uh, he's working house shows through the rest of April against Shelton Benjamin and Matt Stryker, and that gets us to Backlash, where he would beat Shelton Benjamin to become the Intercontinental Champion again. And they have a pretty good match. I was always a Shelton fan. Glad to see him back doing his thing in the WWE. Three and a quarter stars here. What did you think of uh, RVD's first featured match back like this at a pay-per-view for the Intercontinental title with Shelton? I thought it was great on both parts, and I thought it was another opportunity to really shine Shelton and show what he could do. Um, Shelton Benjamin is another one of those guys that a natural athlete, natural charisma, maybe missing it somewhere along the way, but God, I think that Shelton could have done a whole hell of a lot more and hopefully he will in the future. But this was an opportunity and I thought it shined both guys and put a spotlight on them in a positive way. It's worth mentioning here. He's got the money in the bank briefcase and now he's the intercontinental champion, which is kind of fun. Let's fast forward two weeks. The WWE title and the intercontinental title are on the line when RVD is teaming with Cena to take on Triple H, Benjamin and Masters. Benjamin wins the Intercontinental title by beating RVD. And the next week on Raw, after a Cena win over Masters, RVD comes out and cuts a tremendous promo announcing that he's cashing in his contract at one night stand and Rob was going to be the first man to announce in advance that he's cashing it in. He winds up hitting Cena with the Van Daminator with the briefcase. And you guys were sort of letting him do way more promos here than he ever had before. Um, is this because of the strong promo we had at the prior one-night stand, do you think? Yes, absolutely, and they had finally got to see what he could do. And if you let him leave him to his own devices and let him do what he's feeling, it works. On May 29th, they do another draft on Raw, and it's already announced that ECW here is back as the third brand with Heyman running it. His first two picks are RVD and then Kurt Angle. 
it's kind of a fun deal to have RVT or RVD be your first choice, but why angle second? Of course, we've covered angle and long form in our archives at something to wrestle.com and the way he felt about being drafted here. But what was the thinking from Vince's side about why angle was the right guy to go second here at ECW to give ECW credibility and in a shoot, who would you pick if he was available? You'd pick Kurt angle. So, it gave ECW credibility, and that's what you'd do. On the June 5th Raw, RVD and Cena are doing a contract signing, and at the end of it, Paul brings a bunch of ECW guys from the crowd to the ring, and they beat up Cena. Uh, Sabu goes down with a chair and then puts Cena through the table before the WWE guys come out. That sets up WWE versus ECW head-to-head, where RVD would pin the world champion Rey Mysterio. They only go two minutes here. And it was a non-title match, but still told a fun story about what RVD was capable of. Um, and RVD would say he was more inspired that night than he had been since he was the hardcore champion. It was sort of fun to throw the rule book out and just wrestle the way he wanted to with these old ECW-style rules. But it only got two stars from Wade Keller. What would you think of this head-to-head match with Rey Mysterio? Well, I mean, it, look... Uh, it was good. It told a good story and it told you the story of what the hell the future was going to hold. And people, it got buzz. And I think that people were all of a sudden thinking, okay, because Rob won this non-title match, when you get to the ECW, he ain't winning. There's no way that RVD is going to beat John Cena. It's not going to happen. And guess what happened? It did happen. And it happened in a big way at One Night Stand 2006. Arguably the biggest moment in Rob's career here, man. It's a big deal. Uh, June 11th at the Hammerstein Ballroom. The exact same venue as the first One Night Stand. They go 21 minutes in an ECW rules match. And man, the crowd is hot for this in a big way. If you haven't seen this, I'm going to encourage you to go watch it just because of the crowd, man. The crowd is maybe... One of the most electric crowds in the history of wrestling. RVD gets his crowning moment, two and three-quarter stars. Uh, fun little note here that you'll hear one day, I'm sure, from Mr. Heyman. What do you remember about this match and the crowd itself? Well, I was thankful that I wasn't there, but I did watch it on pay-per-view, and I remember just, you got to appreciate, I mean, you know, I make fun of ECW all the time, and, and we all talk about it. N42, the audience and the fan base was just so loyal and so passionate that they made it fun. And to me, it's it's fun when an audience can take over something like that and make you feel that much emotion through the screen. So from a viewer sitting at home watching it, I'm – I'm loving it because that's a cool atmosphere to work in when you've got the crowd so passionate and so one-sided in so many ways. They were happy to see their old favorites. They were happy to see guys that they had, you know, grown up on um, in their own environment. So it was pretty damn neat, as a matter of fact. But I don't think it was something that could be sustained. Were you guys surprised at the reaction Cena got? I mean, was he ready for that? Did he know going in that's what it would be? John did, yeah. I think John definitely. We we were talking about it the week before TV. John definitely kind of had a good idea they were going to shit all over him. 
Was there ever any consideration as to having Cena actually win the match? Oh, yeah. There was definitely consideration having John go over. Uh, I don't think that, you know, Vince being that babyface mentality, you know, getting there, you feel that, you see it. There was no way that he was not going to have RVD go over because it was the right moment and the right environment to put Rob over and maybe doing it in that environment and people seeing that reaction would help even more so on the other side, you know, outside of that ECW brand. Rob would say this is the standout night in his career that no other night can compare to. And a lot of this is really sort of his idea because he was the guy who sort of put the bug in Vince's ear about doing an ECW pay-per-view. And the success of One Night Stand 05 led to Vince bringing it back here in 06. And then along the way, he had, you know, stood up to Johnny Ace and then had a little confrontation with Vince about tribute to the troops and then the, the leg injury and a lot of stuff to overcome here. And this is the crowning moment. He felt like when, you know, the referee's hand hit three, we did it because he never thought that he would be in this spot because of the politics and the company. He just never imagined he'd be the world champion, but now here he was, was anybody sort of nerve? We know what's coming, but was anybody sort of nervous about Rob Van Dam being the face of the company or was anybody, or was everybody on board by this point, especially seeing the reaction here? Yeah, they were, and, and they were on board to get behind him 100% and push him to the moon. Of course, RVD carries the spinner belt that Cena wore, and then on the first episode of ECW on Sci-Fi, Heyman presents him with the new ECW world title belt. Let me back up a little bit, I guess, to uh, late 05, because we're in 06 here now. Rob has said that you came up to him and said something like, Cena's going to be taking some time off in December to film a movie. And Rob said something like, okay. And you told him, there's a chance for you to step into that position. So you might want to think about that. And Rob said, what do you mean? I have to step it up and work harder in the ring. And you said, no, you have to build a relationship with Vince so he can trust you. And Rob said, how long have I been here? Three or four years? Does he watch the matches? Does he see how the fans react? You're saying I have to kiss his ass too? And you said something like, I'm not saying that. He just doesn't know you. And he remembered thinking that that was bullshit. And then Shane came up to him and told him the same thing. And he says, my father has to trust you and build a relationship with you. And that's the only thing that's missing from you being a top guy. And Rob is sort of feeling like, you guys are telling him you got to go kiss Vince's ass. But really, it was about building a relationship. And Rob said whenever he tried to do that with Vince, it was always awkward. He had nothing but respect for Vince, but whenever they talked, it was just short and sort of awkward, like, how you doing? How are you? Just those simple ex- exchanges. Uh, but Shane even used Eddie as an example, saying that Eddie went to Vince and told him that he's going to be the champion now or down the road. And that led to them sort of forming a, a bond and a friendship. Do you think in hindsight, Rob fucked up by not sort of befriending Vince and developing that relationship? And maybe that's why Triple H was in the spot he was in and RBD was in the spot he was in? Well, I think it goes to, to all talents. And I think that in hindsight, Rob agreed with our analogy to him that he should go and forge a relationship with Vince. Every single guy on the roster has that opportunity to go and talk to Vince and 
have that relationship with him. If you're intimidated by him or it's like, oh, well, he doesn't have time for me, and you're not willing to take the time and the extra effort to go make that relationship, he's not going to. Vince is not going to go out of his way to make that relationship to somebody who avoids him in the hallway. If they see him coming, they go the other way. Um, I always liked Rob, and I was trying to give him some advice to say, hey, man, there's an opportunity here. And this is your opportunity. You can go and you need to go talk to Vince. You need to talk to Vince about what you see as your future, what Vince sees as your future, and how the two of you can work together to make it an ideal situation for everybody, not just for the company, but for you too. Tell them what you see. You got through to them on the ECW pay-per-view. You got through to them with the reaction that you got there. Now, Rob has to go and make a relationship with Vince so that he understands what makes Rob tick. And Rob understands what makes Vince tick. If you guys can do that, then, you know, the rest of it is all going to come together and it's going to be a whole hell of a lot easier for you. But if you don't make that relationship, he's hearing, you know, second and third hand of what Rob Van Dam thinks and what Rob Van Dam thinks is good for him. You need to go tell him. You need to talk to him about it and have those conversations, not somebody else. And what I was trying to tell him was, you know, A, go make that relationship, but don't let Paul or anybody else do your bidding for you. You go do it. RVD starts an angle with Edge after winning the title, and then he teams with Angle to beat Edge and Orton on ECW TV, and that leads to a match at Vengeance on June 25th where he would pin Edge to retain the belt. He goes to a no contest on June 26th on Raw. The very next day on ECW, he beats Angle to retain. And then on July 2nd, in Huntington, West Virginia, for the ECW title, RVD beat Big Show. But the real story happened later that night. We've covered this on our ECW, I guess it was WWECW episode, which is available in our archives. And we did it in great length there. We're going to tighten it up a little bit here so if you want more on that uh check out the archives at something to wrestle.com wwe cw is what you're looking for rob van dam and sabu were driving on u.s route 52 in hanging rock ohio and they were pulled off by the ohio patrol for speeding keller is reporting that stretch of highway to be known as a speed trap and in fact, a car with Sandman, just incredible, and a couple of referees were also pulled over that night, but they were just given a warning. But when the officer pulls over RVD and Sabu, well, it is 420. You know what he smelled. He searches the car and finds 18 grams of pot, which is just over half an ounce, and eight Vicodin that belong to RVD. He also found an unused pipe commonly used for marijuana smoking and several other unidentified prescription pills that belonged to Sabu. Both were cited for drug violations and posted bond on the scene. Both must appear in court in Ironton, Ohio as a result. And this is a pretty big deal to the WWE. Marijuana is considered a banned substance. And according to the wellness policy, he's supposed to be suspended for 30 days. That would be the punishment for the first positive drug test result. 
Sabu was only fined a thousand dollars. As it turns out, the pills he had were actually prescribed to him for a diagnosed medical condition, and the pipe was unused with no drug residue. Sabu had had addiction troubles in the past, so officials feared the worst when they heard that he was found with quote unquote drug paraphernalia. At first, RVD and Sabu were concerned for their jobs, specifically Sabu, because he had much less tenure and clout than Rob Van Dam did. And apparently, somebody said, McMahon was becoming a fan of Sabu's persona and really felt Sabu was a vital member of the ECW roster at that time. So his job is safe. And McMahon approaches Sabu after the TV event on Tuesday and told him he appreciate how he handled the situation since Sunday and look forward to working with him in the future. And word had gotten around that Sabu was over-the-top apologetic to all of his colleagues for what happened, realizing it put a bad light on the whole locker room, and he already had a rep for being out of control and drug-riddled during the first you know run with ECW back in the day. And he even went so far as to take the rap for RVD, arguing that RVD had things going his way, and it would be a shame for both of them to lose their jobs or be heavily punished for this incident. But RVD refused the offer, and the police officer would have likely contradicted any attempt anyway. McMahon is not surprised that RVD was caught with marijuana, but he was upset and not shocked. Um, the real frustration, though, is because... RVD had already sort of abused the relatively loose marijuana policy, at least in the eyes of the office. We're going to keep going here, Bruce, but what happens when you get the call? I mean, this is your world champion, your guy, the face of the company, pulled over for fucking drugs. Fuck. That's the reaction. Um because so many people had, you know, stepped up and, and really gone to bat for Rob and wanted Rob to succeed. And this was an avoidable situation. Um, it was just disappointing. It was frustrating and it was disappointing. And the ones that, you know, you know, we paid the price too, because now we've got to go back and rewrite everything that we have. And, and it, it's just, it's just disappointing. It really and truly is. You can't get mad. You just, I guess you get pissed, and I guess that's different. <laughs> um, but it was disappointing, and it sucked. Now, Rob's story is when they were pulled over, he told Sabu to use a spray, and he only sprayed a very small amount. I believe it's called osium. Oh, it is. Which is apparently good for covering the smell of marijuana up. And Rob's contending even to this day that if Sabu would have given a couple of good sprays, this whole thing could have wound up differently. Uh, but he didn't worry that much because he'd been pulled over before. He'd been kicked out of hotels. He'd been charged extra for stinking up the rental cars. And the cop even apologized saying, guys, I, sh- I feel like I should know who you are. And he was concerned that they were going to jail, but the cop allowed them to post bail right then. And Sabu wanted to call and tell Johnny Ace exactly what happened right then, and Rob disagreed with that and said, why would you want to tell on yourself? And he convinces Sabu to relax. Nobody's going to find out. But by the time they get to the arena, the news is everywhere, and everyone knows about it. So they walked past Vince in the hallway, and Rob and Sabu both said, sorry, Vince, and just kept walking. Later in the day, he says, Vince was pretty cool about it. 
He told Rob he's going to be suspended for 30 days and he'll have to drop the WWE title tonight and the ECW title the next day and told him to take these 30 days and get some rest. So all of a sudden, the booking and the plans change. Now, that's what Rob saw. How do you remember Vince handling this, Bruce? Just that matter of fact. Guys, taking the title off Rob, and uh, he's gone. Next. And, And that's, you know, that's it. It was interesting on the Andre the Giant documentary where Vince talks about how he has an ability to erase negative things from his mind. I get rid of it, he says. I get rid of it, yeah. And and I guess I had that same that same thing because you know sometimes it's you forget if if it didn't happen or it changed, you you forget what you were gonna do or you forget that negative shit sometimes. And that's what he did. He was he was over it. We have to fix this and we have to move on, take care of our business. It's a weird deal because, you know, the day after this happens, he drops the belt to Edge on Raw, and then the next day drops the ECW title to Big Show. And both of those happened in Philadelphia, where ECW helped make Rob famous. And Rob is pretty depressed here, feels pretty low, and like he's let everybody and himself down. And he sort of jokes about it on MySpace, saying, well, I guess I can clean out my garage and check out that new Superman movie. And that goes viral with the stoner crowd. I think it even made high times. But at the end of the 30 days, he's asking for more time off here because he's still in this head funk. But Paul refuses to put the request in, saying they won't like that. So let's set the record straight here. What were the plans going to be had Rob not gotten arrested? (laughs) Well, see, that's I prefaced it with, I I don't remember because it was... Once that happened and you move on, you you now have to come up with new stuff. And it was all so new with Rob. I don't remember where the hell we were going. And when you have to change directions like that, you focus so much on what am I going to do now and what's next. You can't – sometimes you remember, sometimes you don't. In this case, I don't remember because – it didn't matter. It just at that point it didn't matter. You erase it from your mind and if you keep it if you keep it in your head, you keep going back to, well, we were gonna do this or we were gonna do that. And if you do that, it fucks it fucks up your thinking to come up with something new for the future. Rob says when he comes back, ECW's not drawing at all, and he, he says they had a pretty shitty marketing budget and they're really just promoting the shows on the internet. And they're not drawing anything as a result. And he says the WWE maybe thought the word hardcore really just meant running shitty venues. And allegedly they had three convos, Vince and Rob, about the direction of ECW. And they were all pretty much based around anything goes in ECW. And that's what makes it work. You've already got Raw and SmackDown, so let's just do the old ECW-style matches. And allegedly, Vince told Rob, I've got to have rules. My referees have got to have credibility. And Rob said, that's what makes it different. ECW can't have rules. And allegedly, Vince says, people don't remember the old ECW. And Rob argued, how can you say that? Why do you think they chant ECW? And Vince said, because I trained them to do that. And Rob realized, okay, I'm not winning this conversation. Do you think that's accurate? Do you think? 
Vince thinks he trained the audience to chant ECW? I think that the audience, when they did the ECW from the pay-per-views, that was an ECW audience. And so for the national audience of people that did it, a lot of people didn't understand why they were chanting ECW. ECW, outside of the pocket where they were really popular, there weren't a lot of people that knew. So for the national basis, that's where Vince is talking about. Yes, he did train a national audience to chant ECW. Sometimes they didn't understand why they were chanting it other than it got a reaction for the ECW guys. And that's what he meant by that. But the whole style of ECW, everything about it, as soon as you put the constraints on, it couldn't be what they wanted it to be. It it couldn't, you couldn't go there. So I think there were those of us, me included, I was a big one, I was like, it's great to do the one-off and do the pay-per-views, but to try and resurrect ECW, not in the bingo hall, it doesn't work. It just, that's what was – Paul had a knack. Paul had a talent for accentuating positives. Even Paul couldn't make it work beyond his compilation shows. When Paul had to have matches and have those guys go bell to bell, that's when it fell apart. Paul's genius was protecting their negatives and doing compilation shows that people loved. And he did a great job at it. And if you couldn't do that, you weren't going to replicate ECW, in my opinion. October 24th is the first ladder match for Big Show. RVD beats him here. And then this is worth mentioning. November 11th, they're in Battle Creek, Michigan, RVD's hometown. Pretty cool for Rob to get to wrestle there because that's where he first grew up, you know, watching wrestling. And that's where he first saw, you know, a tough man contest. And here he gets to beat Paul Heyman. Whose idea was it to have Heyman actually wrestle Rob Van Dam? I mean, how did, how did Heyman prepare for these matches? <laughs> to take an ass whooping. Uh, it was Vince's idea for the house shows to do a little something different. And Big Show and Heyman were a package. And he thought, well, you know, Let's give the people something happen. Everybody wants to see Paul Heyman get his ass kicked. And RVD, especially in Michigan, in that area, was definitely going to be a big draw. November 26th, we see RVD team with uh, Cena, Sabu, Kane, and Lashley against Big Show, Finley, MVP, Test, and Umaga. And in the match, RVD would eliminate MVP, and then he was eliminated by Test. Um, we also got to see on ECW RVD beat Sabu, and then we get to December to dismember, arguably the worst pay-per-view in history. Go back and listen to our WWE CW for a full rundown of this Elimination Chamber match where Lashley beats RVD, CM Punk, Bob Holly, Big Show, and Test. Uh, scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate this pay-per-view, Bruce? About a negative 4.5. Unbelievable. Uh, check it out in the archives. We can't do it justice here. Um, RVD beat so, uh, Sabu on all the house shows to end 06. And then we start the new year with him working with Lashley going to a no contest before eventually we see him in the Royal Rumble again. In 07, he comes in at number 18. He eliminates Chris Masters and gets thrown out by great Kali. And there is a money in the bank. agreed by Triple H. Oh, yeah, I forgot. He comes in at number 18. Uh, He gets pedigreed by Triple H immediately. Not really. Um, February 19th, Money in the Bank qualifying match. 
Edge beats RVD, and then we see the ECW originals. Uh, we're saying Rob Van Dam, Sabu, Tommy Dreamer, and Sandman. They're working with the new breed. Guys like Elijah Burke, Kevin Thorne, Marcus Corvon, Matt Stryker. And this happens all the way through February and March. And that gets us to WrestleMania, April 1st in Detroit. And it's the ECW originals against the new breed. They only get three, I'm sorry, a star and three quarters. You know what's going to happen though. Five star. There's your three count. Meltzer would write, or sorry, Keller would write, not a lot to it, but okay, not dragged out, surprising finish. But either way, it doesn't matter much. Sort of a forgettable match here, and you can tell that uh, the wheels have come off ECW here, right? Yeah, you know, it was, here's what I hated about it. I felt that the new breed and the originals felt like the failed angle that they did in WCW with the the whatever the the new guys versus the old time main eventers or whatever the hell it was. That's how memorable it was. And this is the same thing. It was trying to get the new ECW, and people didn't want a new ECW. Um, fell flat. It just was flat, and the new the new guys had no juice they didn't nobody cared and then when nobody cared about them nobody cared about the old guys either ecw on may 8th there is a three-on-one handicap match where mr mcmahon the ecw champion shane and umaga beat rvd this is real life i can't believe this is real vince mcmahon was the ecw world champion go listen to it wwe ecw in the archive something to wrestle.com Let's get to one night stand. June 3rd, it's a stretcher match. RVD beats Randy Orton. Uh, these guys have a 15 minute stretcher match here. RVD would set Orton on a stretcher and then goes for a running somersault plancha, but Orton moves and RVD crashes onto the stretcher and then the floor. He looks to be out cold. And then at 13, Orton puts RVD on the stretcher and begins rolling it down the aisle. He barely has the energy to push it, and RVD shows some life, so Orton punches him. RVD rolls off, puts Orton on it, and then shoves him past the white line on the floor to officially win, and it's three stars. Orton attacks RVD after the match, including DDTing him off the ring barrier onto the mat at ringside, and Ross said that Randy Orton was remorseless. EMTs come out and check on RVD. He's put in a neck brace and stretchered to the back, and that's Rob's last match at least for a while, he leaves the company right after this. And it's interesting to note that just one year prior to this, it's the biggest night in his career when he beat John Cena for the world title. And a year later, he's out. So if he's leaving, why did Rob win the match? I think because of the ECW nostalgia. You know, we should have called this ECW third night stand. Right. Uh, (laughs) You know, it was, I think it had run its course. But for a you know a happy babyface ending, and that's what Vince wanted. So Rob says that Johnny Ace wanted him to sign a contract, saying that he would return in three or six months. And Rob said he didn't want to do that because he knew he'd just be counting the minutes until it was time to come back. So Johnny says, if you don't sign something saying you're coming back, I can't put you in the video game because you won't be on the roster. And Rob said when the game came out, Sabu and Sandman were both in it, and they're both sitting at home, not under contract to WWE, 
and they both got checks for seventy five grand, but Rob got nothing. What do you remember about him leaving and not wanting to commit to coming back? Well, the only thing I remember about Rob leaving was he was burnt. His contract was up. He didn't want to renew it, and he was burnt. He wanted time out. He want he wanted to get away. And guys get like that. So the best thing to do, let him go. Let him go get some rest. Let him get away because if they're in the locker room and they're disgruntled and they're not happy, it's going to spread. And Rob was one of those guys that you knew where he stood. It wasn't like he was hiding it. His deal was up. He wanted to go home. He wanted to get away. And instead of just saying, okay, go get away, it kept being, when are you coming back? Rob's a, Rob's a pretty straightforward guy. I, he just didn't want to come back. He didn't want to commit. So they kept pushing, and I think that the more they pushed, the more angry he got to saying, I'm leaving, I'm not coming back. He did come back um, for one match on the 15th anniversary episode of Raw on December 10th, and he beat Santino Morella. And when he's there, they try to get him to resign, but he says he's not ready to come back. And in the years later... You know, he worked all over the world. He would be in TNA by the March uh, 2010 time frame, and he beat the current champ, AJ Styles, to win the TNA world title there. He also won the X Division Championship. He had a good run for TNA and eventually returns to the WWE in 2013 at Money in the Bank, and he stayed until August of 2014. Bruce, your opinion. Do you think Rob Van Dam is Hall of Fame worthy? I do. What do you think? I is, think that Rob has had a Hall of Fame career. I, I would agree. What, what do you think his legacy will be in professional wrestling? I think his legacy is is going to be that hardcore and, and an ECW original. But I think when you uh, look at guys that identify with ECW as far as singles, you're going to look at RVD and Tommy Dreamer. But RVD is going to be at the top of that heap. Let's do some questions, and we're going to do them right now. And we got these questions from Facebook. We're going to do them rapid fire. And if you'd like to ask a question for next week's episode, which will be Unforgiven 1998, that's right, a fucking inferno match, The Undertaker and Kane in a ring of fire, for real. Uh, we're going to be covering that next week. And if you've got a question, you can ask those questions right now on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, it's easy. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And you also get lots of other stuff. Like as soon as our show debuted on the WWE Network this past week, Bruce was on there answering your follow-up questions about WrestleMania 14 live. You never know when Bruce is going to do that. But I do know that nearly every day he does the morning deuce with Bruce, and you get a little bit extra on your Bruce Pritchard content. So check it out there. Or on Twitter, we're at Pritchard Show. Bruce, are you ready for these questions? Fire off. Robert wants to know, were there any other points in RVD's career where he was slotted to come in or came very close to winning the world's title other than his 06 run? Uh, no, there weren't. When he originally came in, Paul pushed really hard for him to come right in and win the championship, but it was never a serious idea. Shade wants to know, what was Vince's overall opinion of Rob Van Dam? I think at first the jury was out with Vince, but once... Rob kind of established himself. I think that Vince genuinely liked Rob. Carl wants to know, did Bruce ever partake in the herb with Mr. Van Dam? In Vancouver. Yes, I did at Blunt Brothers Cafe. Should I tell that story? Let's do it. Okay. So in Vancouver, there's a block where, like I think four blocks square where 
pot was legal. Now, you couldn't buy it. However, if you had it, you could smoke it at some of these cafes and uh, coffee shops, what have you. So a buddy of mine and I got there early, and we wanted to go and, and see what this coffee shop thing in Vancouver was all about. And I got there and immediately went to the crew guys because they always know where to go and what to do. And I said, hey, what's the deal with the pot being legal? I said, well, what you do is you go to this place called Blunt Brothers. You go in and you go to the back. And there's going to be a jukebox there. You go to the jukebox and you stand there and look at the jukebox. There's a sign on the jukebox and it says out of order. But you still look like you're going to pick a song and a guy's going to come up to you and he's going to say, hey, it's out of order, but I'm not. Just tell him what you want and he'll give you whatever you need. And then you can smoke it in there and have coffee and cookies or whatever. So my buddy and I get there and uh, we go to Blunt Brothers Cafe. We go back to the back and I'm looking around for a jukebox. I don't see a jukebox. So I remember he said it was near the bathroom. I'm thinking, is it in the bathroom? So I go in the bathroom. There's no jukebox. A little disappointed because we have nothing to smoke. We don't know anybody there. And we start to walk out. And as we start to walk out, the guy at the front says, hey, is uh, RVD coming by later on? And we realize, okay, he knows who we are and he knows who Rob is. I'm going to go ask him. And I go back, I don't know. But, hey, can you tell me what the gimmick is here? He says, well, it's legal to have and to smoke. However, you can't buy it. We can't sell it. You can't buy it in here. So how do you get it if you don't have any? We came over from the States. We don't have anything with us. He says, well, that's easy. You go down to the bottom of the hill, and there's a bar. You go in the bar, and you go to the back, and there's a jukebox. Now, the jukebox is going to have a sign on it, out of order. But you stare at the jukebox, and after a while, a guy's going to come up to you and say, hey, it's out of order, but I'm not. Tell him what you need, and then you can bring it back here and smoke it. Right about that time, around the corner comes RVD, and we were saved. So it was the uh, first time I ever smoked uh, oil and all kinds of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I partook with RVD legally in Vancouver, British Columbia at Blum Brothers Cafe. Highly recommended. Doug wants to know, who had the better frog splash, RVD, Eddie, or D-Lo? I'm partial to Eddie. Uh, Manny wants to know, did Vince ever want to cut RVD's hair? Yes. What's the story? Because he thought there? Rob looked good with short hair. Okay. Um, Jerry wants to know, did Bruce and Vince know what RVD 420 stood for? Well, yeah, wasn't that the tag team four thing and 20 shoe size? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, Ryan says, it really bothers me. RVD blew his chance with the world titles. He was always one of my favorites and an amazing performer. He's finally getting his big push. What do you think his full potential could have been had that not happened? Could he have main evented a WrestleMania? I think that Rob could have main evented a WrestleMania. I think that Rob would have done well uh, in Hollywood as well. I think that Rob could have been kind of that matinee idol guy for the company. Well, there you go. Patty wants to know, were there ever any plans to push RVD back into the title scene after his suspension? I think Vince wanted to kind of play it out and see what happened, but uh, initially, no. Brian wants to know, who was RVD's best tag team title partner? Booker T, I, Kane, or Rey Mysterio? My favorite was Kane. 
I actually like the uh, the Ray one the best. Uh, Matthew wants to know why was RVD not giving a given a push similar to the one he had in ECW with the TV title? I think he was. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, he had opportunities. Um, Rex wants to know. We've heard a lot about this. Did RVD ever have to put anyone in their place, quote unquote, while he was with the company? No, not that I know of ever. Not in WWE, no. Sean wants to know, what was the WWE stance on RVD's relationship with marijuana when it came to the wellness policy? Great question, Sean. Don't flunk the drug test. So the gimmick, you assume, is he's trying to cut corners, but you got to catch him, right? Well, yeah, and all that was random. It goes in a computer and however the hell they come up with it, and guys were tested, and I don't even remember how it was at that time because I wasn't involved. Uh, Matthew wants to know, did the WWF ever try to sign RVD between 98 and 2000 when he was on top in ECW? I reached out to him, yes. I, I did reach out to him. That's the time that I was telling you about at uh, the Galaxy Theater and just let him know we were interested. But Rob was happy where he was in ECW. Uh, Richie wants to know, did Vince ever want to change RVD's character? Not really, no. He just wanted more of it. He wanted more personality. That was all. Travis wants to know, if the drug policy wasn't as strict on weed, how big of a star do you think RVD could have been? I think he he could have gone to the moon. I think, like I said, I think he could have been a a huge matinee idol, and he could have been the guy. You know, nobody asked this. Uh, Conrad from Huntsville wants to know. Oh, God. (laughs) Is Matt Riddle like the new RVD? Yes. Matt Riddle's got a, a ton of talent, and, uh, you know, he was undefeated in UFC, but didn't want to stop smoking weed. But he's got a shitload of talent, man. I think he, I think he's another one that could be a huge star. I mean, he's got money dripping. I mean, you can just look at him and say, fuck, Vince is going to love him. But then there's yes. this other thing, and you're like, well, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, just natural ability and look and... He's just, he's got it. I love him. Uh, Mike wants to know, has Bruce ever tried to do the world record lift RVD does, the Van Dam lift? I taught him how to do that, yeah. I love you for that. And you taught him because you're a three-time, three-time, three-time Black Belt Hall of Fame. I like he did it three times, too. Um, Frederick wants to know, did Paul Heyman push RVD to win the world title? Absolutely. Paul Paul pushed from the moment that RVD came in to have him win the world title. Danny wants to know, did y'all know that RVD was the whole fucking show at the beginning of the invasion angle, or was it after he saved that shitty invasion pay-per-view with Jeff Hardy? I don't know what shitty invasion pay-per-view he's talking about. I thought invasion was pretty good. So did I. Well, listen, I know what's going to be good next week, and it's going to be all about Unforgiven 1998, and you don't want to miss this. Go vote in our poll right now. And, Bruce, this is an interesting poll that we have this week. Let's go ahead and give them poll topic number one. In your house, 15, a cold day in hell. Now, this goes down on May 11th, 1997, and we want to bring this to you because it's sort of interesting what happens on this one. We've got... Mankind working with Rocky Maivia long before he was the rock. We've also got Ken Shamrock and Vader in a no-holds-barred match. But on top, we've got Stone Cold Steve Austin headlining a pay-per-view against The Undertaker for the world title. 
What might we talk about if this May 97 Richmond, Virginia pay-per-view wins the poll? Well, we're going to talk about just the, well, I think this was the first time the Stone Cold and Undertaker had ever headlined, and it was a collision of the, the two titans. It was great storyline leading up to it. And don't forget, we also have the Legion of Doom, LOD against Owen Hart and the British Bulldog for the Tag Team Championship. So a lot going on here, Rockabilly and Jesse James facing each other. This is before they became the New Age Outlaws. So a lot of good stuff to talk about for In Your House, Cold Day in His L. Poll topic number two, somebody that I hope we get to cover. It's my man, Earthquake. And, uh, man, I hated this dude when I was a kid. He nearly ended Hulkamania. It's John Tenta, and we want to cover him because John Tenta is uh, somebody that we haven't celebrated enough here, boys and girls. What might we talk about if Earthquake wins the poll? I think one of the funniest moments I ever had with John Tenta was going into the dressing room before he ever debuted and said, hey, man, can you talk? Can you cut a promo? And he jumped up and cut a promo on my face and scared the living shit out of me. And right then I said, okay, this guy's money. But John Tenta, so many great moments from the time that, as you just talked about, almost ending Hulkamania to squashing Damien to the shoot fight with uh, the gimmick sumo guy over in Japan. John Tenta, legitimate badass, legitimate uh, sumo guy, but a legitimate badass and often forgotten in this day and age, but one of the true greats. Whole topic number three, one of my favorites as a kid, man, the big boss man. He's going to have a birthday on May 2nd, and he might be what's we're covering. What would that date be? May 4th. So on our May 4th poll, will it be Big Boss Man? And if so, what might we cover, Bruce? Well, we're going to talk all about how he even became the Big Boss Man, the first vignettes going into a prison in Danbury, Connecticut. And that prison has much significance later on, which we will talk about if the Big Boss Man comes up. And all the way through Big Boss Man's run with Hulk Hogan and my very first Saturday night's main event as Brother Love, and then through the whole babyface transition of the Big Boss Man, some interesting vignettes that we did until the last time that we saw Big Boss Man in his return in the WWE. Ray Trailer, one of my favorite people in the whole world. All right, last but certainly not least, we've covered 97-98, but poll topic number four is The Rock, 99-2000. What might we talk about if The Rock wins the poll? Man, the rise of The Rock, and I think this is where Rock was really coming into his own, and this is when everybody was going... There's, before Brock Lesnar, there's the next big thing in The Rock. And I think this was kind of the formative years. And pretty sure during this time was the opening of the WWF New York and a great story talking about Sugar Ray. If we talk about The Rock and he wins the poll. So let's recap. In your house, cold day in hell, earthquake, big boss man, Rock 99, 2000. Those are your four poll options. And the poll is live right now. We're your Huckleberry. We'll see you next week. And on Wednesday, uh, what will it sound like when Cornette gives his uh, cheeseburger order? Double cheese, double onion, double mayo. Uh, uh, mother, uh, you. We're doing what we can, guys. Tweet at WWE Network. Let them know that you want the FN. See you, buddy.
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.